Greg Kissarm. Welcome to the Kiss FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today. Nothing is into your head. I hope you don't do any damage. This is a Kiss-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. All right, so welcome to episode 197 of the Kiss FAQ Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill. And I'm alone. I'm sitting in my room in Nashville. It's the morning after the Rockin' Pod Expo 2. So it's probably time to start going through a bit of the audio that I captured yesterday. And um, first part of this show is going to be interviews with uh, many of the podcast folk and a couple of special guests who I conducted yesterday at the Rockin' Pod Expo. I must say it's very important to give Chris Sinzak, BJ Crab. Tracy, all of those involved in the organization of the Rock and Pod Expo, a shout out. There's probably a lot of unnamed people who contributed to making this event happen, to making it a success, and to making it absolutely amazing. Obviously, flying in from San Francisco, I needed it to be amazing. Nah, I didn't. I just needed it to be fun. But it was absolutely incredible. The number of people who I was blessed to interact with over the weekend and yesterday in particular at the event, absolutely incredible. I love and respect the feedback that we've received about our show in particular, about podcasting in general, about the band and bands that we love. Um, It was great to talk to so many people about these things. It was wonderful to have folk bring in copies of books that they've purchased over the year and ask me to autograph. I'm always absolutely bemused that anyone would want my autograph, but I am also amazed that um, people have supported so many of these projects over the years, and it's like seeing your children come home in some ways, having those books end up on your table again. So thank you again for your support of all of the projects that I've been involved in over the years. Thank you very much for your support of my podcast, our podcasts. We need your ears. We appreciate your time listening to these shows, and uh, we respect that you're giving us your time in order to listen to us, and uh, that's a very important thing from my point of view. So, again, thank you all. The Expo, you know, it was insane. There were so many special guests featured at this event um, that, again, Chris did an incredible job pulling things together, often in the face of adversity. There were challenges in uh, putting an event of this scale together. This year, it took place at the Nashville Palace, which is... um, very close to the hotel in which I'm staying. Um, I love the venue. Um, we had booths, which uh, would be used for, I guess, uh, restaurant style um, to uh, podcast out of. Uh, very comfortable. Um, atmosphere was very, I guess, Tennessee. It was country, a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. Um, but it was comfortable. Air conditioning. Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But um, there was a cavalcade of guests. The guy, I mean, some of the standouts were obviously the guys from Angel who performed the night before uh, the Mercy Lounge. Um, the guys from Stars. There was Troy Lucetta from uh, uh, from Tesla, of course, which was uh, actually the first band I ever saw live. Um, there were just so many different people. Toby Wright, producer of Alice in Chains, Kisses Carnival of Souls. I mean, I don't have the list in front of me of everyone who was a guest, uh, but Craig Gass and Courtney Cronendold, uh, comedians extraordinaire who will be performing tonight. So 
a lot of guests, a lot of people. I signed up for uh, three interviews, which uh, went very well. One of them, unfortunately, was lost due to extremely challenging recording circumstances. It was loud in there, as you'll be able to tell from uh, the recordings that I put up today. We were having to talk quite loud to one another. So I do warn you, you may need to adjust your volume uh, between all of the interviews um, and, and segments. And I do apologize, but you know, I think the content is more important than uh, having to fiddle with the dial. Well, actually, we don't do that anymore. Technically, we all do it electronically, whatever, uh, not to be pedantic. So uh, we're just going to jump into them um, and uh, we'll go from there. So I hope you enjoy this recap of the incredible Rock and Pod Expo. So here's to Rock and Pod 3. Let's make it happen. Thanks for your support. Bye. All right, so this is Julian at the Rockin' Pod in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm joined by Gary Schaller, a member of, what's your podcast? Podcast, the KISS fanzine for your ears. Not to be confused with for your rear, that's different. And it is, of course, the gold standard in KISS podcasting for many, many years. You're one of the big boys who've been around for a very, very long time, done a lot of massive episodes. You know, tell us the history of why a KISS podcast. You know, um, I started listening to podcasts in 2005. I was living in New York, and um, we were going to move to California. And I needed something to pass the time. I was in between jobs. And um, I actually started listening to Star Wars podcasts, which is my other main obsession. And um, didn't know what a podcast was and went looking for things to listen to and discovered this whole, like, kind of untapped uh, vein of audio entertainment and figured there hadn't been... I guess there'd been one... KISS podcast for about a hot minute in 2004 or thereabouts. I didn't pay any attention to podcasting way back when, so I would not have noticed. I have a funny feeling like there was maybe one one KISS podcast one time briefly, and it didn't last. And so um, I started it up with uh, James Hager and Ken Mills, and it's taken on a life of its own. Uh, Christine Wolf, Christine the Button Queen, um, who's a part of many, many podcasts, um, counted it up recently and, and ran the numbers, and we've got 241-plus hours total of podcasts to listen to just on podcast alone since 2006 or seven. So um, you could go for a day and still not hear everything. Just think of the money you could make in syndication with that amount of material. Right. And, and I think uh, Christine, ten really, days, right. Christine should really just be called the queen because she does so much for everyone. And uh, last year she put together buttons I know, for she's... anyone who wanted them. So, Christine, you're appreciated. We yeah. love what you've done to help everyone. You've been so willing to help everyone. And, it, you know, it, that's awesome to be part of the community. Oh, for sure. She's great. And, and uh, I'm, we're so uh, blessed and grateful to have as many amazing enthusiastic people i'm just looking across here this enormous room it's pretty packed things are going very well and uh a big shout out to chris sinzak and uh bj cramp also for putting this whole thing together what an amazing event yeah and yeah. tracy for doing the scheduling tracy with, with all the talent that uh us podcasts are going to be enjoying today so i gotta ask you you're you're You've been around the game for a long time when it comes to KISS. Uh, I always like to ask people who come on our shows, favorite KISS album, your first KISS album, and uh, what color of Kool-Aid you drink? Man, oh, that's great. Um, first KISS album was Gene Simmons' solo album, the 78 KISS record. Um, and then KISS Alive I got uh, shortly after, both on vinyl with all the 
um, posters and books and, and doodads in there. Favorite Kiss album? That's a hard one. I, I, I think it's a it's always like a neck and neck between Alive and Unmasked for me, um, with Creatures and Destroyer and a hell of a lot of them being a close second or third. Mm. Yeah, I, I love Unmasked, even though it's a weird album and they're not all really on it and it's... It's got some very well-crafted pop songs. Absolutely. And I think that's what Vinnie Poncia brought to the situation, that he uh, did a lot of editing yeah. that uh, they actually need as a band, except for Ace's stuff. I don't think anyone touched Ace's tremendously, <laughs> yeah. but uh, Paul's stuff in particular. But I think he really has some very strong pop pretensions that you kind of hear coming across throughout the years, but that he became much more comfortable with, particularly on Unmasked and then into the 80s, and gave birth to the power ballad that he included on just about every album. Totally, yeah. And I mean, it's I think... Um, history will hopefully remember that era and that kind of music more kindly as time goes on because it is, it, like you said, it's really well-crafted pop music. It's just good fun, you know, good fun stuff. So and, what, what would you think about Paul Stanley uh, ripping into Tomorrow? Jesus. On, uh, in concert. I would love to hear it with the full power of Eric Singer's backing vocals and mm -hmm. um, all the harmonies that can happen, get the audience singing along. Um I always thought it'd be neat. I I I, uh, I know this is probably an unpopular opinion, but for them to add like a keyboard player that's visible on stage and have it be like uh, a really cute woman in Kiss makeup, and just have her like be a part of the band uh, to offset the sound and play songs a, a, like a that. bit of backing vocals like Motley Crue did in uh, yeah. you know Girls 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 era with uh, I, I can't remember Emmy and the other. The other gal who were, weren't treated like strippers, they were treated as proper backing vocalists as part of the band almost, rather than Definitely. being put in a cage and hung in some, uh, you know, un unfortunate kind of uh, manner. Right. So, some cassettes on stage would, be, uh, would actually be kind of cute. It wouldn't be bad. And I think that like any other change, people would fight it and resist it and then they would probably be okay with it well uncle gene you heard it here first so if you like that idea you can send the check to <laughs> gary schaller at podkist we know you know who they are tm 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 that's it um and what color kool-aid i guess i'd have to go for the red kool-aid because gene you know gene's my favorite member of kiss uh that was the first album so i'll go with red red kool-aid what about you well i know some of this but well, obviously, my first kiss, uh, I, I get to always kind of mess around with this and say, well, my first album's Asylum. I only got into the band because of MTV and those th uh, three videos. Uh, I, I think uh, Who Wants to Be Alone? He didn't come out until early 86, but mm -hmm. Tears Are Falling got me into the band um, and made me go back and discover the catalog. Favorite album? That's that's a tough one. And, you know, when we ask people their favorite albums, it can change depending on our mood at the moment. But I think the one I go back to the most is Rock and Roll Over. Um, it, yeah. The guitar work, the production, the reaction to, as much as I love Destroyer, it got them back to being a gritty rock and roll band. Um, even though there's a couple of cuts on that album, which we can definitely say are filler, mm -hmm. it's killer filler. Mm -hmm. So um, as for Kool-Aid, it was Paul Stanley in 1985 who made me a fan. It's uh, Paul Stanley to this day is the heart and soul of the band. He's carried it in so, much, uh, in so many ways. And as much as I love and respect Peter Chris, Ace Frehley, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, every member who's ever been in the band. Paul has um, got bandages and scars from carrying that band when Gene was uh, off doing his own thing. So Paul Stanley is the man to this day, so uh, give me purple Kool-Aid any day. Paul has l literal bandages and scars, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, he's run into railings, yeah. he's knocked himself out, he's torn his rotator. I mean, the, the guy is a wounded warrior of rock. 
nothing uh, for me. Nothing beats when I mean Paul's never Paul. I never see Paul dial it in or phone it in when no. it comes to Kiss. But for me, nothing beats when when you have a happy and enthusiastic Paul Stanley, uh, like who who looks legitimately uh, psyched and happy about the direction that Kiss is going in. Yep. Um, which I think he has for the past like decade, I'd say. Mm-hmm. He seems like he's he's pretty content with things. Um, there's nothing like that. That's the best. It's well, really good. One last question before I let you go. What's sure. the future hold for Podcast? What are your goals at this point? You've done a lot of episodes. You've had a lot of people on the show. You've had people come and go, but you're you, you guys are still out there. What what are your hopes and aspirations to keep being able to give the Kiss community or yourselves? Um, a I guess a personal goal of mine is to upgrade my equipment. <laughs> I'm still using like the external microphone on the i uh, the iPad or whatever it is. Like I I need to actually invest this year in. I mean I'm like talking into a nice microphone with. Cool gear. And I've stuff. never used these before. These were bought fresh for this event. Is that, I don't you usually, know what? I don't usually record this way. Necessity is the mother of um, credit card bills. Uh, new equipment for me, but also just I think like not resting on laurels, but mm-hmm. just keeping keeping the momentum going. I I'm so grateful to have Ken Mills uh, have Ken Mills. No, he's he is podcast, and uh, I'm so blessed to be a part of it. All right, Gary. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you for everything you do for the kids community. Cheers. All right, we're. We're on the air here at the Rock and Pod Expo in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm joined by good friend Alan Tate of the Ages of Rock podcast. You're one of the three amigos who runs that show. Tell everyone out there who may not have heard your show what it is you guys do and uh, why they should listen to you. Well, the Ages of Rock podcast consists of me, my friend Bill Algy, and uh, our mutual friend Dennis Talbot. Uh, we liken ourselves to three guys sitting in a bar, bullshitting and busting each other's balls. And occasionally we get somebody on the show and interview them. So you're basically like every other podcast. We're just pretending to be in a bar, but not actually drinking beer anymore, talking about music. Right. Mostly we drink water and coffee when we're doing our show. That's because we're a bunch of old farts now. Yeah, that's true. I'm the youngest of the old farts in our group, though. I'm only 48. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm younger than you. So, you know, obviously, you know, I've been on your show a few times. So thank you very much for those invitations. You're uh, always welcome on the show. And uh, we've had you on ours as well, haven't we? That's correct. And we still need to do that uh, should have been a single. Yeah. Yeah. So so if you're out there, you can just steal a topic that Alan suggested. Just uh, send the checks to the Ages of Rock guys for all the royalties that you get from uh, listens and hits on that. So let's talk about you as a Kiss fan. When did you get into the band? And what was it that drew you to Kiss? I got into Kiss probably in 78 or 79. Uh, my introduction to Kiss, I, I, I must have seen Peter Chris perform Beth on TV or something, because uh, that's the only Kiss song that I really knew at the time. And uh, my babysitter, I was about to turn nine years old, so I would have been in mid-79. Uh, she asked me what I wanted for my birthday. I told her I wanted the record with Beth on it. So Destroyer was my introduction into Kiss, and it's just been downhill from ever since. Nice. So that was your first album. What's your favorite Kiss album? Harder Than Hell. Why? It's just I love all those songs on it. There's something about it. I don't care if it's got muddy, shitty production. It's, it's got a something, unique sound, that's for sure. Something about that production makes that album great for me. It gives it a and character it, that it, they've never you can never replicate. Right. And I think that if they found all of the tracks 
went back and tried to remix it, it would sound like shit. Well, it would be like putting bass on Metallica's Justice for All. It wouldn't sound right because we're so used to it. Didn't we just have this conversation like yesterday? We did. <laughs> so so there you go. All right, what flavor of Kool-Aid do you drink, Alan? Oh, the blue Kool-Aid. You're, you're an, a Fraley guy? I'm a Fraley and a Simmons guy to the end. That's yeah. awesome. And, and the funny thing is, is uh, I saw Simmons in Fort Wayne the week before the Indy Expo, and then the following week I saw Ace. So I got my Kool-Aid fix for the year. Yeah, you can't go wrong <laughs> with that combination. All right, pimp your show and tell people where you can they can find you. You can find us on agesofrock.com. Um, What's your most recent episode? My, our most recent episode was um, like the drummer from the band uh, Red Rain. They're... They're guys, I don't think they're quite my age, but they're kind of a older guys, and they're still out there doing their thing. And they've got uh, Chipster PR as their representation, so they're, they're pick, picking up some pretty good shows. Nice. Yeah. Okay, cool. Alan Tate, thanks for joining the Kiss FAQ podcast and telling us about your show today. Thank you. Hey, Peter, you're from the I Love It Loudcast. Uh, you're at the Rockin' Pod Expo here in Nashville today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your show and what brought you to Nashville to be, to be a participant in this event? Sure. So a little bit of the history. We're a fledgling podcast. We, we just got started in April. Uh, we're up to episode eight. And honestly, uh, largely the impetus to do this is just me and my partner, Vinny Folletti, who's my co-host, just have loved this type of music forever my wife calls me, you know, the king of useless knowledge, all the minutiae I know about Kiss and Cheap Trick and a million other bands. And Vinny has the same, like, passion for this music. And honestly, Julian, um, I've been listening to nothing but podcasts for, like, the last two years, uh, one of which is yours, which is top-notch, which is, you know, one of the ones we hold in very high regard. It's something I've always wanted to do. And uh, my wife finally said, will you two knuckleheads stop talking about it and actually do it? So we looked at each other and said, what the heck? Let's give it a shot. And so I'm I'm here to kind of meet all you guys. Uh, it's a, a pleasure to now finally put, you know, a lot of you I knew the faces, but right, to, right. to actually meet you and shake your hand and tell tell you what, you know, your podcasts have meant to me and Vinny. And hopefully someday our podcast will mean something to somebody else. But we just, we love the music. We love to deep dive. And it's just, it's a passion. There's a lot of respect between the podcast. So that's what I enjoy. It's amazing. About this event. The brotherhood, I mean, just... The, the outpouring of support, um, you know, people giving us pointers, uh, just pointing us in the right direction, what to do, what not to do. I mean, it's like friends that, that you know, it seems like I've known you guys forever and it's it, I'm just meeting you. You've, it, it's a, such a gracious community. There's no, you know, there's no ego. It's just. We're just oh, there, all there, trying there to. Is, there is a lot of ego, uh, but you know what? Most <laughs> most of, most of the people will keep it in check because yeah. I, I think anyone who does a podcast is doing it from a point of passion. Number yes. one, yes. we may have some characters on other shows, on our own shows. Uh, that you may have a little bit of drama here and there, but all in all, it comes from passion. It's about passion, yes. and it's about the music. And yeah. everyone has to share and wants to share. So yeah. you know, anyone who wants to get into the podcasting game, everyone has a voice. Yeah, you know, yeah. you don't need special gear to do it yeah you don't need technology you can do just skype and uh, a call recorder yeah and off you go and once people listen to you if they like you they keep listening sure. to you and i think everyone who does a show respects the listeners that they are giving you their ears for an hour or 10 minutes or yeah. whatever it's still time and the great thing about podcasts unlike you know live radio like you got to 
30-minute commute. You listen to half while you're on your way to work. You listen to half while you're on, yep. you know, on your and way it's back. Free. Yeah, and it's free. Yep. And it, and just the the takes and the different opinions. You know, opinions are like you know what yep. everybody's got, yeah, everyone's one, got one. But that makes it so colorful. You know. Yeah. So we're a Kiss podcast, and uh, I want to ask you, what was your first Kiss album? Okay, my first Kiss album that I ever bought was Rock and Roll Over. Awesome. And best album ever by the band. Best album cover, best album ever, even though my co-hosts will disagree. And, folks, if you listen to uh, our episodes three and four, we go over, we call them from Ace to Ankh, part one and part two, going through all the Make Up Your Albums. And we have some good banter on that, but I agree, it's my favorite. I remember being as, as a little chubby kid in the sixth grade, getting on my bicycle, driving down to the local record store called The Vinyl Jungle, Seeing that album cover, I'm like, holy cow, what is this? Yep. And, I mean, Kiss was masterful at drawing you in, obviously, with the visual, visual before band. you even yep. heard them. And I was hooked. And I, Kiss and Cheap Trick have been my 1 and 1A since the 6th grade. I'm going to be 52. So for the last 40-some-odd years, I've listened to them religiously. Isn't it amazing that here we are at this age... And they are still around. Paul Amazing. Stanley Amazing. is still a master, a maestro of yep. the circus. I mean, Psycho Circus. A maestro of the Psycho Circus. Yeah, the good one. he is on stage, one of the best frontmen, if not the best frontmen ever, in my opinion. Well, you talk about, do you think, Julian, all those years ago, they would have figured that all these years later, they'd still be up there? I mean, think about it. What a masterful concept. With the outfits and the makeup, you're kind of ageless and timeless. Absolutely. You know? And and they still look as good today as they did back then. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe not as much up close. You can see some of the wrinkles. Sure. But but who cares? You know, the fact that they're still doing it. Got to respect that. I want to ask you, what is your, um, you know, your first album obviously is Rock and Roll Over. What's your favorite Kiss album? When you're down in the dumps, you need something to pick yourself up. There's only go one to, thing that's going to do it the way you thing. want it. <laughs> it's still rock and roll over, baby. Again. When I put on and I, when I drop that needle on my vinyl, I'm a vinyl guy. I got over 500 albums. I have all my Kiss albums that I bought originally back when I was in, in grade school and high school. When that needle drops and love them, leave them. And I put it up to ten. I'm in a. I'm transported into a, a different world. Yep. I think that is Ace Frehley's best guitar solo ever. By the way. I think that's his best sounding guitar it's on a Kiss album. So great. On rock and roll. So great. I mentioned it uh, with one of the people I was speaking with earlier. The sound, the sonic dynamics on that album. As Wonderful. A reaction. I I don't bash Bob Ezrin and Destroyer, but they are two completely different beasts. Destroyer is a thing of beauty. The passion and the uh, attention to detail with which it was recorded. When they took all of that and threw it away and said, this is us and what we can do without any of those yep. uh, additions, bells and whistles, and just let every band member breathe, then you get an album that's fantastic oh. like that. And they were never able to re- replicate that again. No, Love I see. Gun, th- that's my opinion. Too much. They went too far. They weren't able to keep it organic. Yep. And obviously, they recorded the two different ways. So yeah, They went one step too far on Love Gun. While I love Love Gun... If love, if I could have Love Gun done the way Rock and Roll Over was done, um, oh, it'd yeah. be the, the the fantastic two in a row. Yeah, I say that, that they I, aren't. You know, that's the same case with many bands. I always say Motley Crue's Theater Pain. If it sounded like Shout at the Devil sonically, yeah, it would have been that. Those songs would have Ju- been. Julian, better. this is scary that we're of very like mind on, on these subjects so far. So well, maybe you, you're my brother from another mother. You, I don't you, know. You never well, know. Yeah. You're, you're, it may <laughs> be that upstate New York water. There you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. So who is what flavor Kool Aid? do you drink and that is who is your favorite member of the band ace freely is my favorite member of kiss and my favorite rock star of all time 
has always been and will always be. That's fantastic. Again, as I say, you can't pick a wrong. There's no wrong answer no, to any there of isn't. these questions. It's just nice to get to know people and where they're coming from in terms of their KISS point of view. So where can people find your podcast? Okay, again, our podcast is called the I Love It Loudcast. We're on iTunes. Obviously, it's free. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Podchaser. Right. Uh, also, a Facebook page of the same name. You can listen. You can find us on Facebook at the I Love It Loudcast Facebook page. Please, folks, listen, rate it, share it. We're just getting going. We love this. We would love to hear your feedback, show ideas, whatever. Um, but it, it's just, it, again, it's something we really, really love doing. And I hope I can be doing it as long as you have, my friend. Well, there's people here like Ken Mills and the Podkiss guys. There's Michael Butler who's been yeah. doing it a lot longer and a lot better than I do it. Um, and that's no, no disrespect meant to the guys on my show. But we press record, we press stop, and I put it up. There are guys here who put a hell of a lot more effort into their shows. They will take a couple of weeks to put theirs together. I don't happen to want to do that. <laughs> Me neither. I'm lazy as the day is long. Again, there, there's no wrong answer. There's no right answer. And anyone checking out a podcast, remember, they're free. Yep. All you have to waste is your time. I know. And then yep. if you didn't enjoy one of our shows or our episodes, don't just write us off. Come yeah. back and try a different one and sure. see if it works or yeah. check out another podcast and see what you like. Yeah, you know, and, yeah, and, like and give, a us a ch- give us a chance too, folks, because, again, me and Vinny knew nothing about going into this. Shout out to my co-host, Vinny Folletti, who would have loved to be here today, but he couldn't make it. Um, Vinny, gosh, he does all the technical stuff. He does the hard work. I just open my big mouth and talk. So he does all the hard that's work. That's all any of us do. <laughs> we just have our big mouths yeah. and talk, and that's the fun of it. If, if we're fortunate to have partners that we get along with and really like, then you know I come out of every show respecting my co-hosts and enjoying the conversation yeah. to the point where I don't actually care if people like the show because I've enjoyed my conversation you know, with my friends. That's You know, and it's funny because... My wife isn't going to talk to Kiss about yeah, me other than when you're getting that shit off the wall. Exactly. I've been in bands my whole life. I've sung in bands my whole life. And my wife of 20, 21 years, who I love dearly, she's my best friend, doesn't even come to watch us play. She's just not interested in the yeah. music. But Vinny's 10 years my younger. So he's reli- he's living vicariously through some of my kiss stories and my kiss adventures and it's been so so fun well that's awesome thank you very much for joining us today best of luck with your podcast and your show and you know what just keep having fun we will julian thank you so much uh folks you are listening to one of the best in the biz right now this guy knows his stuff he knows his kiss minutia it's, he's a, it's a great show keep supporting julian and please check us out i love it loudcast awesome thanks a lot all right, so we're back at the Natural Rock and Pot Expo, and I am joined by... Brad Page. What's your show? My show is called I'm In Love With That Song. What I do are 15-minute episodes where I kind of take a deep dive into a particular song. We take a look at all the little elements and features that make it a great song. Uh, it's not really about music theory, but we do kind of talk a little bit about song structure, uh, recording techniques, and highlight certain cool little elements of a song. For example, one of the shows I did is a Paul McCartney song called Daytime, Nighttime Suffering. In the middle of the song, there's a little bit where there's a baby crying. But I must have listened to that song a hundred times before I heard that little piece in there. So, you know, every song reveals itself to you over time. And you can listen to a song a hundred times and still discover something new in it. So that's what I try to do on the show. Now, are you guys centered in any particular genre or era? Or are you open to all all aspects of music history? I mean, it's rock, but it's rock in the broadest possible strokes so i've done newer stuff i've done vintage stuff uh yeah just basically it's songs that i like 
Now, what about a band like Kiss? You done any of their songs, dissected any of them yet? I did, yeah. I did an episode on Flaming Youth, because that's a pretty interesting song, just this, the genesis of it. Yep. Between you've got a piece that's an ace piece, something yep. that's a Paul piece, you've got the Gene Mad Dog piece. Yep. So I actually inserted a little clip of the, the demo of Mad Dog in there. You've got the 7-4 time signature yep. section. You've got the guitar solo that, is it Dick Wagner or is it Ace? Personally, I think it's Ace. I don't know what your take is on that. There's some punch-ins by Dick on there, without a doubt, but it's based on an Ace track. I think he's just punching in note for note in a couple of areas where maybe a bend wasn't quite right Mm -hmm. or a a little bit of character was missing. You know, definition, salt and pepper, seasoning. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's kind of the way that I look at it. It's either Ace or it's Dick Wagner doing a really great ace guitar solo you know it feels like ace absolutely so you know whenever i talk to anyone i always ask them what was their first kiss album so what was your first experience of kiss whether it was an album a song or whichever yeah well so i was born in the 60s so i was of that age when they were hitting their peak 14 ish right i think the first record i got was rock and roll over I, I, that makes me smile every time I hear that today because Such I, a great obviously record. there's a lot of love for that album. Yeah. Yeah, and then from there, worked very quickly worked backwards to Destroyer and Alive. Alive is the record that's the closest to my heart. Whether it's really live or not doesn't matter. It's, it's so a you're lucky. Great record. You only had to work back a few albums if you start with Rock and Roll Over. I yeah. came in an asylum and uh-huh. had a lot of a catalog to yeah. purchase to work my way back. Yeah, no, I literally grew up with it. I mean, for me... I didn't have, I was an only child. I am an only child. So I didn't have older brothers and sisters cooling me in on what was out in, in music. And I was a comic book nerd when I was a kid. And there is no better band to transition a comic no, book nerd absolutely. into rock and roll than Kiss, right? Yep. So that was my entry point, not just into Kiss, but into rock and roll. And it literally changed my life. I mean, I would not be sitting here. You know, I've been a musician for 40 years almost. I mean, all of that is due to this one band really so i have a lot of love for that band all right so if i had to ask you to pick a favorite kiss album what would it be it would be alive a a, a greatest hits basically and the best sounding of all those early albums in one format for sure i mean i love a lot of the early stuff uh dress to kill is a big favorite record of mine i love that record so that's almost more of a power pop record than a hard rock record but i really like them but now the the performances on alive just bring those songs to another level it's a great record. It, it I, the hours spent sound. playing air guitar to that record as a kid. None of those time, none of those moments were wasted too. You know, it's just remember that for the rest of my life. You know. Yeah. Well, 43 years later, it still sounds as good and as vibrant and as powerful as it did the first time I ever heard it. So. Oh yeah, that's a great record, man. I always like to ask people what flavor Kool-Aid they drink. Who's their favorite member of Kiss? Uh, you know what? It'd be Peter. Awesome. I've been dying for someone to give Peter some respect that he deserves and to actually name the Catman as their favorite. I am one of the few people on the planet who believe that Peter's solo record is my favorite of the four solo records. I don't. No really? one else ever agrees with me, really? but I love that record. Yeah. Well, to me, you know, when you do a solo record, I think it should stretch beyond what your band is doing, right? Absolutely. And his record does that more than anyone's. Oh, yeah. Um. And, you know, you got to be willing to let I, – I don't like to put any band, particularly Kiss, in a box, and this is what you do, right? Yep. Um, and that record, it's not a Kiss record, but I'm not sure it should have been a Kiss record. You know Absolutely. I mean? It should be a Peter Chris it, record. It, it was a very honest album. 
He didn't try and be Ace Frehley. He didn't right. try and be Gene Simmons. He basically presented himself the most honest of all four members, except maybe Gene's with his being so eclectic yeah. and strange. Uh, Gene right. was very honest as well. But, uh, you know, Peter didn't go the ego route and fill it up with a ton of guests, somewhat diluting right. the honesty yeah, of it like Gene Yeah, that's what did. I love about it. And, you know, his voice was in its prime uh, during that period. I love Peter's voice. Always have, always will. That's why he's my favorite member, because I just think he's the best singer in the band. Not to diss the other guys, but, no, you know, but you know, he's pick, a great Picking vocalist. one doesn't disrespect any of the others. Right. You know, it, it's all about taste and what it means emotionally, and that's what music should be. Does it touch you? You know, and, yep. and it really is as simple as that. Absolutely. So where can people find your podcast? So it's called I'm In Love With That Song. Um, it's available on Stitcher, iTunes, all the usual sources. There is a Facebook page. Just search for... I'm in love with that song podcast, and it'll come right up. And it's hosted on Podbean, like a lot of the other shows here, so you can always find it on Podbean. It's so, easy to get. Before we wrap, what was your last episode about? My last episode, I just recorded one before I came out here. It's about Aretha Franklin. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I take a deep dive into A Change Is Gonna Come, the Sam really? Cooke song. Nice. Yeah, one of the great things about Aretha is when she covered a song, she didn't just cover it, she owned it, right? She made it her own song. Yeah, Otis so. Redding certainly thought that she had owned his song. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's true almost every song she covered. But yeah, she's one of the greats. The one before that, it was uh, Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple. Just one of, I think, the greatest singers of all time. It's a great set song. of pipes on that, man. And he's great. Yeah, yep. he's on the road right now, too. So I'm going to go see him in September. Looking forward to that. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for joining us on the Kiss FAQ podcast. It's great to meet you in person and hang out in Nashville. Thank you so much, Julian. Cheers. Hey, this is Julian back at the Nashville Rockin' Pod, and I am joined by esteemed author of the absolutely incredible book, Van Halen Rising, Greg Renoff. Hey, thank you for having me on, Julian. I have to say, you, I'm sitting here looking at a table full of your books. You are an esteemed author as well, and it's uh, great to talk to you. I love your books, and I'm really happy to be here with you hey this is going to be a fun chat the mutual admiration society sure you, you know what i i love van halen and what you did with the storytelling in that book what what gets you to a point where you decide to do a book about van halen when uh, the brothers aren't really the most approachable and open uh in talking about their history particularly a very early part of it you know so i uh i grew up a big fan and then went on to uh be a historian i was actually teaching college and i had a uh, a huge collection of circus magazines and all these interviews with different uh, members of Van Halen that I had read over the years. And there were always these holes in the story, I thought, when I would read these interviews, because, of course, no one had ever put the story together of their beginnings. And it would be how David Lee Roth joined, or, the, of course, the, the most famous for our, our purposes today is the Gene Simmons saga. And the dates would be kind of screwy, and I'd say, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. It couldn't happen in 1977. Uh, this couldn't happen in 1975. And I just started... Uh, thinking that there's a pretty big story there and I ended up beginning to delve into that a little bit by talking to some people who I, I found on Facebook a couple people and one thing led to another with people from Pasadena California and I sort of saw this whole world that opened up about Van Halen fandom that I of course a fan I could be interested in as a fan this whole period from 1972 73 up through 1978 when they become uh, stars after they have their first right. record come out and I saw this is like a whole un undiscussed era of their their career and for me as a fan I was sort of burned out on the Sammy versus Dave debates you know what's the best Van Halen record I mean we've all kind of like you tread over that ground so much and just to think well they were playing backyard parties they were playing in Hollywood at the Starwood at the Whiskey a go-go they were playing the passing the Civic they had a, a following big enough where they could attract 3,000 people as I started to find in 1977 before they had a record out when I started to sort of get all those pieces 
laid out in front of me, I thought I should write something about this and sort of write this book. And eventually it became where I was going to write a book. I kind of also had this inkling that, as we you kind of alluded to, that Van Halen Brothers were probably never going to write a book. David Lee Roth's book, which I really enjoy, Crazy from the Heat, people should read it. It's a, it's a really good good insight into Dave's mind. It's not a linear story. It sort of jumps from thing to thing, and you really have trouble kind of saying what came first, what came second. How did this? How did they go from playing house parties to playing clubs on the Sunset Strip to finally getting a record deal and opening right. for huge bands, Anaheim Stadium, LA Coliseum. And so that was for me as a fan, I wanted to unveil that period of time for myself. And then it just it sort of took on a life of its own. I realized there's a lot here and that uh, I think other people will enjoy. Roughly how many years did it take you to put this, all of these pieces together? And, and the writing, I mean, you, you really write in an organic, very relatable manner, uh, which is very easy to follow and, and a pleasure to read. The, uh, so I really, you know, I mean, I would honestly say, like, you know, I first started like researching the book in the 80s when I was reading these magazines. I'd be like, oh, wow, they played at Gazzari's. I think, doesn't Warrant play at Gazzari's? I sort of like, you know, kind of hear these stories. But um, I really started at a crawl in 2010 kind of reading uh, some old, you know, old interviews. I would read you kind of going over that ground. Then I, I found some people on Facebook, as I mentioned, who were from Pasadena. And it was just a matter of almost so, like uh, doors opened. Like this person would say, hey, you should talk to my friend Jack. Jack had a house party in 1974 where the police came in a helicopter and flew overhead with the, with a spotlight and broke up the party. And then I get me to Jack and Jack tells me the story. And I'm like, wow, that's that's quite a story. <laughs> and then I, you know, I talked to other people and they'd be like, yeah, we went to Jack's party. And it was sort of, it all kind of opened up from there. So it built up from 2010 to really 2012, 2013. I was kind of writing in earnest, and then it came out in 2015. There's the editing process, as you know from having done many books yourself. Uh, I don't know anything about editing. <laughs> well, as my critics I've read, I've read you. your books. You, they, are, they are edited, and they are proofread, and they are put well, together. So, fortunately, yeah. the ones with Tim McFate were very well <laughs> edited, uh, but my own. Um, so... I, I want to ask you about uh, something that KISS fans have been most interested in in the last year is Gene Simmons' vault right. and the legendary right. demos with uh, Edward and Alex. Sure. Uh, have you had the chance to hear those since the vault came out? I have, heard, I have heard snippets. I do not own the vault, and I have not heard them. So I've heard samples that have the sort of the loops that have went on, on online of the 30-second samples or whatever. So I I had heard about this, these, these demos from people that they had that they had happened and then i also was able to get a hold of a interview by um done by a journalist named steve rosen who was rover guitar player guitar world mm -hmm. magazine in the 80s very yep. successful and he he had an unpublished interview in full with rudy Lirin, who was eddie van halen's guitar tech and in that interview which uh steve gave me access to he goes into kind of great detail about this whole thing and i i was very yeah interested to kind of nail down what it was and then i sort of went through the chronology to try to figure out when it fit into place one of the big puzzle pieces for me was when did gene get involved with Kit, right. with van halen right. and what what was the window of time was he with them um but to actually when i heard they were coming out i was i was stunned because from what i understand and i think you probably heard that same interview with gene with eddie trunk from 15 years ago where gene implies that he approached the van halen brothers and said i'd like to put these out like around 2000 and they when we were the first kiss box set was coming right, out and they, shot and they were down. like uh, no and so the fact that he actually went ahead with it, I was, I was, frankly, shocked. I assumed that they they signed a release back in the day. I'm sure they did sign a release of some sort for Gene, where they basically said, you know, we're we're appearing on your demos and you have the commercial rights to them. But I, maybe they came to some sort of agreement or a payment. Well, I don't they know what it was. well they did because uh, what had to happen in order for those to be released was Gene had to trade the multi tracks 
oh, yes, the demo yes, sessions right, yes. for the rights to release it, and then both parties went away happy. So we can we can put the put the, the reels away in a box and never see them again. Now. So now Edward has everything in his in his vault, and um, well, I, I guess as as it goes as an artist, he has control over his own material, right? Which is very important to him in particular, and and what he's what he wants sure. to maybe not do sure. in the future, or you know, I guess Van Halen fans sure. always hope that something like demography would one day right. become an official product with Edward's sources. Well, one of the things, too, I always thought was quite interesting, and I'd be interested to hear what you thought about this, is that uh, after I listened to um, Christine 16 with an ear to understand that Edwards was involved in that, that process of that song being created, and I thought about Jamie's crying and how close those riffs are. Yeah. I mean, I really think that Christine 16 sort of birthed Jamie's crying. For, and or I don't think or the guidance that Gene was giving him, because he tortured Edward... During the recording of that song, I think he had to do four or five takes yes, of the solo, right. to, and it, it's written about in Gene's vault book by Ken Sharp, right. um, that it was quite an arduous process because Gene was adamant about the style of solo right. that he right. wanted, right. and on the other songs, Got Love for Sale, Edward goes to town, and that's a completely different beast than the, uh, the, the version that Ace re-recorded, so uh, very interesting from that kind of perspective with him. Yeah, and it's it's also to me, I think it's a real uh, a real testament to what great musicians the brothers were, because I think you know it gives the, it gives sort of a whole different, I, I, from what I heard, texture. You know, it's a it's a uh, they were obviously had done so many cover songs that they could kind of come in and be like, it's like this, and Gene could sort of produce them and get them to, to record the the way he wanted the songs to sound, like you said, like kind of coach up Edward, and they were, uh, he he had obviously had the eye for talent, the ear for talent. He picked the two guys who could have could have. Uh, done it couldn't done any better those two might just go far <laughs> you, you might have a future young, it, it, young it, edward well it's just a shame now that after having a taste of a reunited van halen recording material that uh nothing's come since especially the stuff that they worked on being you know basically reshaped early demos right. and, and stuff uh, that's the most disappointing part with van halen for me they uh you know I, I think it's always one of these things where people ask me and i'm sure they ask you is van halen retired and not I, I don't know it, it's it's hard to know. I mean, we won't know until the final the final day comes where it's it's over, over. But it, it sort of seems like there's not much urgency to create new music, to put it out there. Certainly, I look at artists like Jeff Beck, for example, who has got to be, what, 75 years old and yep. is always, always doing something new. And uh, everyone has got the right to do whatever they want with their career, the prerogative. But certain individuals have obviously much more of a burning impulse to try to continually create new music and put it out into the world and other people don't i mean tom schultz right the other the other flip side of the coin years and years and years of not doing anything and suddenly an album appears so maybe that's what we'll get maybe we'll get a new van halen who knows i I, at this point i wouldn't mind an edward solo album as long as he doesn't sing let me just qualify what i just said he 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 was the original he was the original singer right before dave he was singing which is yes there is a reason why they chose dave over edward to be the, the the vocalist of van halen but uh i i uh i think back to uh early 1985 when uh after when dave was walking away from the band there was some talk that edward was going to do a solo record basically to give them some breathing room right to kind of put out all the stuff that was non-pop oriented van halen and then of course they found sammy and away they went but yes i would i i would love i mean i i always think about the fact that people would line up out the door out of the front of uh, edward's uh home in Coldwater canyon all the way down to hollywood musicians of the highest caliber to be able to play on that with him and so you know, if he wanted to do a solo record and he wanted to, you know, say, hey, would you guess, Eric Clapton, would you guess on my record? Pete Townsend, would you guess on my record? I mean, these guys would be, you know, be happy to do it. And it would be amazing. But it's it's something that 
Maybe we'll get, maybe we won't. I, I, uh, I, I don't have much hope that's going to happen. Though. So let me back you up into a corner and ask you a couple of Kiss questions. Sure. First Kiss album you either owned or heard. Yeah, so I, I'll tell you, when I was a kid in 1976, I remember very vividly seeing the Spirit of 76 poster on somebody's right. wall across the street from my house. So I was I was seven years old. Really, my first time that Kiss Well became on my radar at all was probably uh, Lick It Up. Probably. That's what I'm trying to remember. I mean, of course, I knew who Kiss was. I'd heard of them, but it was sort of this thing where Kiss was over. Right. So in 83, 84, um, I don't think I don't think Creatures of the Night was something I would have heard on the radio or seen on MTV. And so that was kind of my window into a lot of these bands. But then uh, I definitely would look it up video, which, of course, is <laughs> it's a whole nother whole nother topic of conversation. That video is very, uh, very memorable. It's sort of what it's what it is. And so sort of the girls and everything. And so, yeah, that would be my first first real, I think, experience with Kiss Beyond probably hearing Beth on AM radio as a kid or something, which didn't register with me yet. Okay, so uh, if I made you pick a favorite Kiss album, what would be one that you would be proud to say is in your collection? My well, I, I've got a number in my collection. Probably my favorite is Destroyer. I just think the songs, the production, the performances, the whole yep. package is there from beginning to end. And uh, you know, the other records, you know, there's there's some I like more than others, but really that's that's probably my ultimate. Alive, another one I really really love. Uh, but uh, yeah, of the uh, of the '80s records, if I was gonna pull one out, I probably would go with "Lick It Up." Is probably the one I like the best out of those records. Um, I have my have my moments where I will enjoy, you know, something off Crazy Nights or something. But yeah, it's, it's, it's oh uh, totally. All right, so uh, "Color of Kool Aid." Which member of the band most uh, impresses you, or you'd say that you think of Kiss and you immediately think of this member? Yeah, I mean, I think. I think Gene, because of the Van Halen connection, I know yeah. that sounds like the obvious answer for the guy who wrote the book about Van Halen, but that's really for me. I, and I also, I always have found Gene's approach to uh, everything from the beginning. I first saw like video interviews with him on MTV, or he would be with Martha Quinn, or whoever he'd be sitting with talking to about about Kiss when they took the makeup off. I mean, I actually remember seeing that. Yep. And they're, they're like, they've taken the makeup off. In fact, I know you're kind of, it's kind of triggering for me. And, I was, and of course, that was for me as a, non-Kiss fan, I still knew about Kiss and makeup, and I was like, oh, look at these guys. You know, look what they look like. So I just remember Gene had this sort of air of defiance and arrogance about him and his confidence that really kind of stuck out of my mind as a, oh, as a young kid going out. He really doesn't really care what people think, apparently, you know, so. All right, so what's in the future for Greg Renoff? What are you working on? So my current project is the authorized autobiography of Ted Templeman. So I got to know Ted the record producer really well during the making of Van Halen Rising. And I asked him if he would be interested in working on a book with me. And he said, yes. And I kind of explained to him my motivation for that was not uh, solely Van Halen oriented. Obviously that's a big part of the story. But when I got to know Ted and talk to Ted in the uh, the time where the book was, was already out, we started talking on the phone and having conversations it was that uh, Ted had been an artist He'd been up in a uh, soft pop band called Harper Bazaar in the late 60s. And then Ted also was somebody who worked at the very bottom at Warner Brothers. Actually, he started as a tape listener. So he went from being a, a guy who had a gold record on Warner Brothers Records to a guy who they hired as basically like, yeah, you can work in the mailroom and listen to tapes. Here's the Doobie Brothers and is able to get an opportunity to produce with uh, Lenny Warrenker, who went on to become the president of Warner Brothers and right. did like every, you know, a million, million successful records that you we've all heard on the radio. Lenny uh, and Ted produced it, and sort of have that 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 story of a guy who's a jazz buff, a musician himself, 
goes and he's in this pop group. He's on with George Burns and Louis Armstrong on these TV shows, these variety shows, to this pop star, to then being like, it's over. What do I do now? I want to be a record producer and kind of starting at the bottom and working his way up to find Van Halen, to find Doobie Brothers, and to have such success. Uh, and the other thing I'd say about Ted is that interested me was when I got to know him, he was such a, a humble, nice guy. I, you know, I didn't want to be writing a book with somebody who was going to be just not pleasant to get to know. And Ted's a, right. a great friend and just a, a very, uh, just a straight shooting guy who just really is a music lover. I mean, that's what it's about for him. It's about the music. It's not about like how many gold records would I have. It's about, I love, he's like, that's why I did this. I love music and I love making records just to make them and talking about how that was his his absolute motivation from when he was a kid listening to Motown records like how did they get the tambourine to sound like that why does the drum sound different on this record this record sort of kind of become a musician and then realize record production is my thing awesome yeah. so where can people find you yeah I'm at uh, on Twitter at Greg Renoff so it's G-R-E-G-R-E-N-O-F-F feel free to follow me there and I would love to connect with people uh, through Twitter awesome well Greg thanks a lot for giving hey. us some of your time best of luck with the project look forward to reading it hey appreciate it thank you so much uh, Andre LaBelle, thank you very much for giving the KISS FAQ some time today at the National Rock and Pod Expo. Um, I, I just want to start at the top of your career. I read on your website your biography, and uh, you, you said as a youth you were surrounded by artistic energy. So what led you into drums and music from that well, point? That, that was Well, that was my father. He was, he was a professional artist. He painted all his life. and un, Unfortunately, my mother passed away when I was young, and but it was just us three. Um, my father, my brother, and I, and he wanted, I guess, to devote his time to us because it was just, just us two boys that he had, as far as the family, mm-hmm. and um, he pushed us into music. And I was 10 years old in '76, so I mean that's when Kiss was like right in the height of it, you know. And we were huge Kiss fans, and he bought us equipment, and we started. I mean, our house literally was easels on one side and musical musical instruments on the other side, so. That, that was it, man. Yeah. So my, what made you pick up drumsticks? I mean, had you uh, messed around with any other instruments well, before I, you set them yeah, up? Yeah, I, I tried to play guitar a little bit. My brother was going to play drums, but we switched it up, you know, because he was taller and he would look better out front with a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so who, who were some of your influences then that you really aspired to first imitating as you learned your craft? Oh, it was first, first of all, it was it was Peter Chris, obviously, because I mean, I'm 10 years old in 76. But then later on, I got into like Keith Moon, The Who, and and I started listening to Pat Travers, Tommy Aldridge. Was, that guy's I still listen to that guy today. He still got it today. The phrasing that he created is so unique. Nobody can do it like Tommy Aldridge. Though I mean, everybody does like that quadruplet kind of thing, two of the hands, two of the feet, and you get it kind of quick, and it sounds like a rumble, you know. Okay. But Aldridge was doing doing things with threes with his feet that was completely unique and is still unique to this day. So I would say Tommy Aldridge, that was the guy that really put me into what I wanted to be. But then as I got older, I got into the fusion stuff with Vinny, Vinny Caliuta and, you know, Dave Weckles and um, Jeff Picaros and all of that, you know. Um, so you, you mentioned that you were a Kiss fan, that you were affected by them, you know, in the 1970s. Uh, what would be your favorite Kiss album then? I would say probably Kiss Alive, that Alive album, because I remember listening to that with headphones on and hearing the crowd, and it felt like you were at the concert, you know. And um, I hadn't been to a Kiss concert when 
before before I'd um, gotten the record or whatnot. So it was that experience of I think that's the album that actually made it happen for him because people were able to experience that live energy from Kiss on that album. So that would be it. Yeah, yeah you, you finally felt the emotion and the power Positively. coming through that vinyl. You know, and the, and the photography had a lot to do with it as well. You know, the image. I mean, we exist through five senses, man. I mean, eyesight and hearing are the two biggies. It's so, I mean, obviously, what you see is going to be significant as far as what you're taking in, your per- perspective of things. And, and I love that. I miss the... Um, the show, I miss the, 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 the image and, and what was happening during the 70s, you know. Um, and hopefully it comes back, but things have changed, you know. Absolutely. What do you recall of your first band? You, you were in a band with your brother, weren't you? That's you know, right, and yeah. And you started to play. So tell, tell us about starting building up as a live performing musician. I appreciate that. My brother will appreciate that. I mean, he was a huge Ted Nugent fan. And it was really him just trying to be like Ted Nugent, basically. And we went out playing clubs when I was like 13 years old trying to be like a ted nugent cover band and uh he had the he had the leather wristbands with the studs on it like nugent had and all of that <laughs> he was 15 you know i'm like 13 and, and that was the beginning of it but we we actually had local success when i was really young i was 13 years old and and the major radio station in our hometown exo 102 put us on an album that they did and they played our song all the time on the radio so i was 13 dealing with that you know and wow. and that experience was so much fun and there was so much energy that came from that 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 i fell in love with it and never stopped that's all i've ever done is play drums you know so so with all of that early kind of success and positively I, I know you guys did the grind out on the east coast and you and you worked really hard you decided to relocate to the west coast when you were 20 didn't you well, yeah man why well scott travis had moved out there drummer for priest yeah he played with racer x we were friends, and uh, he lived in Norfolk, and he told me he was going to move out there. So I, mean, I always looked up to the guys playing. I mean, when he was playing in the bars when I was younger, he was killing it just like he was he's doing today. That guy is a monster player. So he moved out there, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I should probably follow suit and move out there as well. That's kind of what made me move out there. Right, so you hear a lot of the horror stories of people who've uh, kind of gone from the Midwest or the East Coast to the West Coast. I mean, Axl Rose and the guys at Guns N' Roses yeah, kind of sung it and shown it. Uh, how do you survive out on the West Coast without falling uh, victim to a, a lot you. of the bad stuff? Yeah, man. Well, I mean, well, money has everything to do with it as far as, like, to get you in a safe situation, a place to live, live where you're safe and secure. I, and I didn't have any money. I was always poor. But a good a good friend of mine named David Clemens, an incredible guitar player, this guy, um, his mother managed an apartment complex in Santa Monica on 4th and Pico. And he was able to get my wife and I in that apartment complex. So I had a place where I would be safe and, and all of that. And a friend, you know, that, that I could count on. Right. And that's if it wasn't for him, I would have never made it out there. So how do you start establishing yourself on the West Coast? Obviously, you left all the people you knew, all your connections, kind of, uh, other than man, Scott. Man, you know? I, I did. I approached anybody I could, man. I mean, if I if I was out there and somebody told me that that you this this gentleman here at the bar is involved with radio and and he's got contacts, I would walk up to you and introduce myself. That's what I was doing every day, nonstop, man, just introducing myself to people. 
And, it, and there's so many famous people out there. Like, you would see famous guitarists standing at the bar, and I would walk up and introduce myself. But a lot of times, you know, it wasn't easy because I would I would do that, and they would kind of get pissed off, like, you know, leave me alone, that kind of attitude and all of that. But uh, I realized that was going to happen. I used to, I used to make notes on how to approach people and what to say, like what, what didn't work in approaching people that, that I was hoping hoping to make a contact with, and all of that. I mean, I'm like 21 years old, right? and th- th- that's what I was doing. I mean, it has everything to do with relationship with people, making an, a connection with people. That is literally what our existence is, you know? Yeah. So it was all about that, man. And I got the gig with Vinnie Vincent because I was in Guitar Center, and Michael Monarch from Steppenwolf was right. standing at the counter, and I overheard that he um, was the original guitar player in Steppenwolf, and was looking for a drummer, so I went up to him and I, and I introduced myself and I said, "Could I audition for you here? Because they have a, a drum booth in Guitar Center. I could just take you in there and play for you." He was like, "No problem." So I go in there and play for him. We start recording together. About a year and a half went by, where I hadn't heard from him, and uh, he he wasn't able to get the deal that he was looking for and all of that. So things just kind of went south with it. But he referred me to Vinny, and I get a phone call from Vinny out of the blue. But that had everything to do with me approaching him at Guitar Center. If I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have got the gig with Vinny. So that technique and what I'm saying as far as meeting people and having the, the, the will to introduce yourself to people was everything to do with, with at least with my small bit of success. You well, know? social media, old style. It really, right? Yeah, man, you it know, really it's, is. It's called networking. And uh, I, I guess it paid dividends for you. So let's talk about Vinny Vincent. You know, how, how did you become start working with him? What did the process uh, entail between you meeting Vinny and him saying, you're the guy who I'm going to work with? Um, man, I mean, I got the gig after the, after the audition. Um, I guess I was, I mean, another thing that has a lot to do with that is uh, being in the zone and just playing well at that particular moment. You know how sometimes you might be in a certain mood where you just kind of feel nervous or something, and you're talking to somebody and it doesn't really work out. You're just in a certain ill zone, you know. But the, the, that time where I auditioned for him, I was I was at my peak. I, I was feeling good, but um, it was a nervous situation because I didn't even meet Vinny until um, I'm at the studio. My drums are set up in the drum room, and the engineer Rick Barcelona approaches me and says, "Well, Vinny's going to be in it, in here in a minute." And um, he, he just wants you to do a drum solo, you know. So he comes in, introduces himself, sets down in a chair, and has me play a drum solo. So, I, man, I was, like, nervous, dude. I was, like, reaching in the stick bag. with. I remember looking at my hand as I went into the stick bag, and my hand was quivering, you know. And I was like, man, this ain't good, you know. But back to the point, I mean, I was in, I was in a good zone that day, I guess, right. and I played really well. And uh, he was impressed. And that was it. After After that... A couple of days went by where he called me to come hang out with him and have dinner with him and all of that, and he offered me the gig. So let's talk about Zones. Vinny had been through a rough time. Obviously, uh, you know the story of what happened to the invasion. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, the guys yeah. who became slaughter and went on to multi-platinum success. What was Vinny's attitude like? Was he um, was he down or was he uh, was he fired up to get in there and really start uh, building you know, a the, comeback? I never really I never experienced Vinny being down. As far as like any kind of uh, thing that he said or the way he was acting that really showed that he was worried or stressed. I mean, he seemed to be pretty in control. You know, I hear all this stuff about like, you know, these things about Vinny where he was hard to work with and all of this. And 
personally, I really can't relate or add to any of that. Because I I never had any problems with the guy, man. He was very humble and laid back. It might have something to do with that. I grew up in Virginia, and I hung up I hung out when I was young around a lot of bikers and stuff, you know. And I'm used to like harsh attitudes. Right. Vinny was like very laid back and peaceful, and the whole time I was with him. Well, he, he seems like a very quiet spoken yeah, person. Yeah, man. But yeah. It, when we talk about drummers and Vinny Vincent, we often end up talking about drum machines or uh, the yeah, torture of Bobby Rock which is uh, well-documented. Uh, how was his direction to you and what he wanted out of a drummer for the sessions that were basically Guitar Mageddon and Guitar Some Hell? He didn't uh, allow me to learn any of the material. Um, he wanted me to play it just off the cuff. I put the headphones on behind the kit. Once we went through all these drum sets and got it set up to where it was the set that they wanted to use, which was a mix of a lot of different drums, Ludwig Toms. Um, I think we used the, the kick drum the kick drums from uh, Carmen Apice, uh, Slingeland drums, on a couple of the tracks. But uh, after getting all that down, he had me set behind the drums, and he would play the track just a few times so I could hear it in the headphones. Right. And then he'd have me just come in and go for it off the cuff. And when I got through the verse, maybe halfway through the course, he would stop recording and start talking, talking to me through the headphones. And he would say, try something like this, or... Let's um, maybe um, do some more accents with this particular phrase here. Just kind of dictate it and um, rewind the tape and have me go at it again. And that's the way the whole the whole album was recorded. Were there any guy drums on these tracks that he was playing for it was you? Just the or click track. Just, just just the click. Yeah, just so the click. So he was really yeah. wanting your gut interpretation. Oh, yeah. With what he the guidance that he was giving you. That was uh, it, man. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's I've I'd never recorded that way before. But I think it was really smart on his part because I ended up playing a lot of stuff I would, never would have thought of. And I didn't have a chance to really be analytical and think about what I was playing. It was literally coming from the heart. I was right. just feeling the music and making it happen. So, I mean, that's how I recorded the tracks. But later on, you know, after after the sessions were done and Enigma went south with Vinny and Vinny was looking for another label to get behind him, you know, years went by and... The tracks that I recorded on, on the two-inch real tape, you know, I'm not even sure whether he he lost um, ownership of it because Enigma paid for it. So those tracks might have been shelved to where he couldn't even get them. Right. And then started working with drum machines on his own, you know. Uh, essentially, 96, he did release an EP with some material. I don't know if you've heard it, but um, if you did hear it, was the guitar work the same as you recall playing along to? Some some of the songs and some of the guitar riffs were the same, mm-hmm. but um, it, it wasn't me playing drums on it. This this is where he, I think the budget was different, and he was doing it maybe in a smaller recording sense, and he used the drum machine. I think that's I know better now to why he had drum machines on those recordings. I think that's what happened. I think he lost the um the ability to use the tracks that he had recorded with Enigma that I was on. So he changed gears and went into using a drum machine in order to get that album out that you're talking about. I think that's what happened. Right. So uh, vocalist on this project is Robert Fleischman, who you worked with in the sky. Yeah. Um, what's it like working with a, a vocalist who, um, every time I see Robert, I'm always impressed by his demeanor. Yeah, if he's a badass, screams, man. badass, rock star, yeah. just uh, he oozes class. He's a badass, man. Uh, I, I was intimidated when I first 
was recording with Vinny and I met Robert, you know. And then once I got to know Robert, he's a sweetheart. The guy's got a huge heart, man. I look up to him big time. I mean, the, the guy, I mean, music is, music is, persona is part of it, man. Yeah. I mean, even in radio, it's that way. I mean, when you think of like, what was that guy? The Wolfman, you know, from back <laughs> in, the, in the 50s. I mean, yep. it's, it's a personality. It's, a, it's an energy, you know. And uh, Robert has mojo. The guy's he's a badass. Simple as that. And a brilliant songwriter. I'm I'm absolutely honored that I got the chance to record those records with him. You know. Well, the the sky stuff that you've done. Yeah, man, with that's him some is of the, absolutely incredible. I'm proud. That's some of my most proud uh, proudest moments in recording, positively. But Robert can. He's a slick character as well. I mean, if if you get your foot e- even near your mouth, he'll shove it in. You know, he's like, he's he doesn't play around. But, I mean, I'd laugh at it. I'd have conversations with Robert where he would start giving me hell and teasing me and shit. And, and the, the insults were so funny that I, I couldn't help but laugh. So it's not like he's an asshole. It's just he's just that kind of guy. You know what I right. mean? Right. Right. So um, what's the status of the sky now? I mean, uh, is, is there hope for more? I mean, you've put out two albums. Robert's okay. done a solo album uh, since. Uh, well, Robert's doing painting now. He's mainly doing art. But uh, I just hit him up before I did this and uh, chatted with him a little bit. I mean, I'm not sure what he's going to do as far as recording in the future, but I'd be surprised if he didn't record again. Right. I think he's if he doesn't, he's crazy. I can tell you that. Um, Vinny was working with Gene and Paul at the time on some of the re- revenge stuff that uh, eventually came out. You're a fly on the wall for us uh, to a certain extent. I mean, do, do you recall him uh, writing or working on material that uh, he eventually took to Gene and Paul? Yeah, I didn't hear any of it. I mean, I think Vinny is a hell of a multitasker because we were doing the sessions for the drumming that I was doing. Now, Vinny had already done guitar work enough, you know, just tracks for me to play along with. So he wasn't in the studio playing guitar, but he was behind the mixing board while I was rec- recording the drum tracks. But he was recording and writing with Kiss while we were doing that in the studio that we, we were at. So he, he didn't ask you to knock out any drums for tracks that he could then take Not into Gene? I okay. think I think the writing that he was doing for Kiss was more him going in the studio with them with the guitar, right, and showing them ideas that he came up with, and um and then when he was done with that maybe he would come back to the studio to where I was at or however the scheduling was being done, but I didn't see any of it go down. I did I did get to know Gene and Paul and and I, I'd hung around them a few times while I was playing with Vinny, but something interesting about that is that it didn't seem like Vinny, you know you hear all this stuff about that. That Vinny was like he sued Kiss for money and all of this, you know, mm-hmm. and he didn't seem to have any problems with him when I was doing the tracking with him. He was writing songs for him. I think, man, the business when it gets as big as like what the level that Kiss is at, that there were there's there's disagreements and arguments and things that go down that and the emotions only last maybe a few days or something. Right. And then they'll pull him right back in to do do more work. It's something like that because it doesn't seem like he really had any real problems with Gene and Paul. So I guess the business on that level, there's a lot of things that can screw up and, and go south. You know? Yeah, I guess on the business side, it can all come down the road years later. You know, and then they might call him back a year later and, and then things are fine again. Yep. You know, It's that kind of thing. It, it's, it's always better from my side of the table to enjoy the music and not the business. That's right. So, yeah, man. Uh, you're watching Robert do his vocals in the studio. Is Vinny giving him the same sort of direction that he gives you on drums? Is he very particular in oh God, to what yeah. he wants out of the? You know, Robert's an instrument in a to a certain Positively, extent. Positively, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, Robert wasn't going to stand for any uh, 
for him telling him what to do. Robert is that's probably part of the reason Vinny loves Robert is because his personality and this and and his 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 sarcasm and his wit with that. Vinny, I think, is was an, is impressed with Robert's ability to do that. So he he would I was behind the board when Robert was doing some vocals, but Rob Vinny would come in and say something and tell Robert to try a little something, and Robert would just kind of shut him down, you know. <laughs> so that's how that went. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, how did things kind of end with Vinny? I mean, you you recorded um, I don't know how many tracks you did total, but I did like uh, over a dozen. Right. Yeah, man. And there's there's a bunch of them out there on bootleg that's actually me playing drums. I don't know how they got out there, but they're on the internet. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the titles like uh, you, you got Cop Ride, Caesar, the Serpent. Ride the Serpent. Yeah, I mean that's Rocks me. Fire. I mean it's the ones that are real drums is pretty obvious, you right. know, and that's me playing drums on it. And there's a there's a good number of them out there on the on YouTube right now. Well, we don't know what exactly happened between Vinny and Enigma. Yeah, how did how did things end? Did you just uh, pack up one day? You're done with your part of things and uh, hope to hear from Vinny. Uh, how did you kind of? That's, exit I mean, the that's scene? really about it. I mean, right. just it's probably very similar to the relationships that you've dealt with with business. It just kind of started fading away. Vinny didn't have the money behind him to go back in the studio, so there was no reason to really call me because there was no studio to go in. You know. And I started working with other people. I did I did a little bit of work um, with a project with Richie Kotzen and his wife, and uh, Andy Susmill, great guitar player out of Germany. I just I I just went to Germany with him and was out there for a couple of weeks doing recordings with him, and um, I started doing other things, you know. Right. But uh, I mean, it was very disheartening, man, because I mean, I was fortunate. I got my name on the Kiss Family Tree through it because the record never even came out. Right. You know, that was a godsend, man, because I'm a huge Kiss fan, and to have that happen was incredible. So that very, you know, that very event itself that my name got on that family tree on Kiss Alive 3 was worth the whole thing for me. You know? Absolutely. Time's at a premium today, so we have to keep you on schedule. Yeah, I'm man. Gonna, I'm going to ask you uh, just, just one more question. Um, what are your thoughts on Vinny's reemergence? He's, uh, you know, basically come back into the limelight. I think it's incredible. In this man. past year, do you have hopes that uh, he will release uh, guitars from hell or Guitar Mageddon or whatever he wants to call it now? You know, and, uh, would you prefer him to um, use your drum tracks? I mean, of what course, of course, that? I'd love that, man. But the, my my initial response and thought to him coming back out was relief because I didn't. Nobody knew. Robert and I would have conversations about what was going on with him. And there was some some conversations we had where we were wondering whether he was even alive. Yep. I mean, sincerely, nobody had heard from him. So, I mean, when he came out, I mean, I was just happy to see that he was okay. I mean, we're people, man. I mean, I want to play drums on great music, but it's more important for me to know the dude is okay. Yes. Because, I mean, me being able to play with him got my name on that Kiss Family Tree. And um, I owe the guy, you know, so I want to know that he's all right, regardless of whether he uses me in the future or not. And he damn sure seems like he's okay. So that's that's cool. That's good news, you know. So would you take a call from him and be receptive if Positively. the opportunity arose? Would it be Much one of those things that you yeah, want to revisit with Robert, uh, perhaps working with him? Positively, dude. I mean, but he's Vinnie Vincent. He's, he has a lot of people he can work with. Who knows who he might work with? But um, hopefully he'll pull me in on some tracks. I would be honored. But if not, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing on what he records, you know. Well, fantastic. That's a great positive note on which we can end. Andre LaBelle, thank you very much for giving the KISS FAQ podcast your time today. Yeah, man.
Awesome, brother. Thank you, man. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right, so here's Julian at the National Rock and Pod Expo, and I am joined by Steve. Correct. And Greg. From the band Lipstick and the Lipstick Panel. Great to be with you in person. You're so much sexier in person, Julian. <laughs> like, your voice has seduced me for so long. You're definitely <laughs> wearing rose-tinted glasses if I, you think I, if I I, any of that applies. Glasses. I mean, they're purple. That's not really rose. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, it's obviously affecting your outlook on life. So, you I'm, know. I'm really happy. I got this Michael Bolton record for four bucks. I was hanging out with the guys in Stars and Angel. I'm having a great time. Hey, you know, there's a lot of people around here today. What do you think of some of the highlights in, in terms of the talent that you've uh, had the opportunity to interact with? You know, it's it's less about, for me, the, the, the fandom thing and more about just, like, having good chats with people about music. So, like, talking with you is one of the highlights. Just, like, hanging out with friends and partying. Like, that's, that's what I'm digging about this. And because I live in Nashville, a lot of these guys I know. And a lot of these guys I run into around town, like Kenny Olsen, like, I mean, you know, I, what, I, I hung out with him last week. So like, oh, hey, you're a special guest here. Hey, do you want to hang out? You know, it's like, but for me, it's about the out-of-town people and the friends, and that that's what this is about for me. Well, you know what's really good about today is uh, there's air conditioning in here, and it's fucking hot out there. Yeah. So yeah. I have, I've not been out. I'm staying in here. Well, you know, I did want to thank you guys for having me on your show so many times. It's been a blast. Every episode that we did, you know, the, I think the last you're, one you're with creatures. Most, you're most of visited guests. You are number one. You are number one on the panel. If we're ranking people on the panel, that's you. You're number that, one. I, I think that just proves what a whore I am, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> He's a whore. A podcasting whore. So, you know, obviously we got to mention where people can find your show. You know, tell us about Lipstick, the, the panel. Yeah. And so, uh, how that came about. So um, we're, we, we've been doing a glam rock for the last few years. We're an original band called Lipstick. And in the modern social media age, you need to have new content coming out every week. And we were burnt out by, like, the, you know, the Instagram and Twitter bullshit. And just, like, wanted to put out something that we liked every week. So we're like, you know what, let's do a podcast. Let's talk about music. We're friends. Let's make some new friends. And so every week we do a ranking show take an album and we have a uh, we vote on it on the songs and our panelists vote on the songs and then we figure out what the panel ranks the song so what the best song is what the least best song is and it's a lot of fun we do a lot of kiss we do smashing pumpkins we've done megadeth black sabbath and just, video game soundtracks and video game soundtracks <laughs> you know it's we have sort of you know we have our rock fans we have our nerd fans and you know they blend together sometimes but it's it's a lot of fun. We've made a lot of great friends and enhanced our friendship with other people. It's been really awesome. So where can people find you, both for your music, which uh, I've been checking out some of your songs on YouTube of late, uh, <laughs> but in terms of your podcast, where can people find you? And for your band, where can people find you? You can find us, all of that, on LiftedGeneration.com. It'll have links to uh, our music. It'll have links to the podcast so you can listen to on iTunes. You can listen to it on YouTube. And uh, for the KISS fans out there, if any of you like Mr. Phil Schaus from the Gene Simmons Band... And if any of you say no, you're obviously idiots. Right, because Phil is is a uh, very, very lovely individual and a great guitar player. He plays on two of our songs. He plays on You Can't Stop the Rock and Stop. And just phenomenal guy, great. And, you know, it's cool for me as a big KISS fan to be like, hey... That's one degree of separation between me and a guy who played with Gene Simmons. Like, my guitar player played with Gene Simmons. Like, that's so cool. 
All right, so let's get a couple of Kiss questions in here. I mean, we've I've done quite a few of the uh, the album panels with you for Kiss stuff. Most recently, Creatures of the Night with Joe Polo from uh, Podcast Rock City was also a guest on there. Uh, but uh, what was your first Kiss album, Steve? Let's start with you. Well, I, you've been on the podcast, so you know this. I'm listening to them in order. Kiss One was my first Kiss album. All right, Greg. The very best of Kiss was my first Kiss album because that was the one my dad had, and then after we saw Kiss, that was the one I borrowed from him. So what I like about that album in particular is they have a version of Detroit Rock City without the car sound effects, yep. and you can really appreciate just the production on it and just how big those chords sound. And the thing is, the ending of that song is so much better without the car crash. It sounds so good. I don't understand. It confuses me. Well, well you, car crashes car crash. are a bit of a downer. They had the car crash on the album version, and then they removed it for the greatest hits version later. Right, and that so was so clearly they recognized that the car crash was a bad choice. Yes. All right, so so while you're talking about favorite Kiss album, I'll let Steve go first. Dynasty. So far, really? I thought it was I thought it was Gene Simmons. <laughs> now I did enjoy the Gene Simmons solo album, surprisingly, considering I hate most of Gene's all of the terrible Gene songs about fuck <laughs> sex with teenagers. Oh, that's brutal. Uh, <laughs> but, Di- but Dynasty is your number one. I didn't know that. It was all disco-y and fun. And, and, we, and we have to qualify that statement with so far, yeah, so because far, you're not you're not done with your experience yet. He's only of the night. he's only gotten up to Creatures of the Night, which some people considered like the last great Kiss album. There's that and Revenge. Yeah, there, there are some people listening who are saying, well, you can just stop there. Right. So, but we're not. We got Lick It Up next. Uh, mine is Music from the Elder because I like JRPGs and progressive rock concept albums. So. It's like, oh, this is Kiss doing the kind of music I've wanted them to do the whole time. Awesome. Now, we always like to find out what flavor of Kool-Aid people drink. So, (laughs) in terms of a favorite member of the band or someone who inspires you versus makes you, uh, well, uninspired, what flavor of Kool-Aid are you going to drink, Steve? I I find myself increasingly appreciating who Gene Simmons is as a person, as, as a fellow bassist. I recognize all of the fundamentally bassist things he does. Like when he writes a song and the bass line is just easy because he's lazy and doesn't want to work very hard. Or when he plays that same song live and the bass line is way more complicated because he's bored. Or when he just has Ace Frehley play bass for him. Right. Or so Bruce like, Kulick. Or I'm, Tommy Thayer, perhaps. I'm, I'm really starting to identify with the guy. Although not so much the butt sex with teenagers. Well, yeah. Right. So, so won't you aspire to delegating your bass duties to someone else? Yeah, right. <laughs> I desire to be bored having somebody else play my bass lines. And writing your songs, are you? Right. Well, you know, that's a great business model for the yeah, uh, modern right. era. Have somebody else write songs and get paid for it? Sign me right up. All right, purple glasses guy. What flavor of Kool-Aid are you going to drink? My favorite member great. of KISS is... Uh, so, I think... I'm most like Paul Stanley personality-wise. Well, that goes well with the purple. Right. But favorite is definitely Peter Chris. Oh, hallelujah. Um, Peter, that's the second person today. <laughs> and it's, I, you know, whenever we talk about Kiss, getting people, you know, to to send some love Peter Chris's way, it, it, it's a battle. So it's great that we've had a lot of love for Peter today on this show. Yeah, just, you know, real quick some reasons. I mean, I'm a big jazz and swing guy, so I love that he brought that element to the band. He has a lot of, you know, swing to his playing, which I know he's not a very heavy hitter, but I think his style brought a unique swagger to the band that would not have been there without it. 
Uh, I like cats. Cats are cute. And also, I love his persona because at first I thought he was the quiet, sensitive one, and that attracted me. And then I realized he was like a cocaine-driven maniac. Yeah, an angry tree shooter. Right. And you know what? That made me love him even more for completely opposite reasons. But it just made him so much more fun. And so I was like, yeah, here's this weird guy who does jazz and does all the cocaine. You know what? I'm sold. So wait, hold up. You're saying you have been bribing people to say that they like Peter Chris best? I would never bribe anyone for anything. <laughs> Dang. I'll change my vote for a dollar. <laughs> I, I, I don't have any money. And that is the most Gene Simmons thing you could have said. <laughs> <laughs> no, Peter Chris is an absolute sweetheart. Oh, my gosh. And anyone who's met him in recent years has only seen a cuddly kitten. So. You know, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you one anecdote about Peter Chris. On his birthday when I was in high school, my buddy and I were big Peter Chris guys, and we would celebrate what we called Peter Christmas on his birthday, where we would wear Peter Chris makeup, listen to jazz and swing, and eat lots of spaghetti to celebrate being Italian. So Merry Peter Christmas, all of you. There you Shoot go. your that, Christmas that, tree with a, a shotgun. That's that's a new one. Instead of uh, Merry Christmas, Merry, Merry Peter, Christmas. Merry Peter Christmas. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks a lot for giving us some time. Uh, what's your future? What do you have planned? Working on a new album. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Working on a new album and new podcast every week. So while you're waiting for us to make new music, listen to us talk about music. Absolutely. So remind everyone where they can find you. LipstickGeneration.com, and it has links to everything from there. The podcast, the music, music videos, pictures of us with cats, pictures of us with giant cats, all the things you want are there. Well, go out and shoot a Christmas tree. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Thanks Thanks for having us. Let's jump straight in then, yeah, because uh, you were both members of Looking Looking Glass, which became Fallen Angel. Let's right. talk about how did uh, Stars come about. You want to start? No, you go. Okay. <laughs> well, Doobie's actually, uh, and he likes to be called Doobie, not Joe. Just, just for, the, for the millions Doobie. for the millions of people out there who are going to address him if in the you future. You know me, you call me Doobie. That's it. Uh, he was actually in the original Looking Glass, which was a band of four players. Uh, they were a Rutgers frat band, and they really weren't that good. But they got better. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And they got signed to Epic Records in like about 72, right? Uh, Late 71, early 72. Okay, and they did an album. They got signed by Clive Davis, Epic Records. They did an album that very soon after just died. They produced it themselves. And about six months after the record was dead, it sold four copies, one to each family. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) about six months after the record died a dj from washington dc started i'm doing good uh i, mean, I wasn't there so i got so i know the i know the legend started playing brandy and it went from a dead issue to a number one record and if anybody out there knows how hard it is to even get a top 20 record and to a top 10 record a top five record a number two record but to get a number one record it was not impossible. It was number one uh, around the world this week in '72. Damn. I wound up selling three million copies. That's incredible. Congratulations. You know, even all these years on. Well, it took until it was not until it was in the first Charlie's Angels movie did I earn a dime. <laughs> that was yeah. in the year and 2000. Then of it just got used in, Gar- it was just Guardians, in the Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah, it was it's all about the- Brandy. Right. The story is Brandy. So right? that's where I get my mailbox money yeah. from. I've never seen it, but friends of mine tell me it's all about Brandy. You know? It is. Yeah. 
So I'll, you want me to give you a quick? Yeah. So, you, so you, you lost your singer uh, and for Looking Glass. He and quit I, because he wrote Randy and sang it. They did a second record, and right. and uh, so without him. Yeah. So without me. And Elliot Lurie was the guy who wrote and sang Brandy. Okay. And he thought, well, you know, I'm the guy. I'm the star. I can do my own record, and I don't need these guys. So he quit and got his own record deal and did a record. But we did a – but they got – and because he was going to leave, they got me. They, right. they auditioned guitar players, and I passed the audition. You got so. Brendan from the back of the Village Voice. There we go. <laughs> actually, actually from an ad on a rehearsal studio wall. But – um, that's how it happened. But and so we did a tour with Elliot and me in the band, uh, and probably was a three months or something like that, three or four months. So then feet. Elliot left, and we didn't have a lead singer. And so I believe it was my idea because you guys were saying, you know, we're, well, we want to be a rock band and we want to like get people to stand up and cheer and and, and demand hard, hard music. Yeah, and demand encores. And I said, so, well, you know, I think we should get a a front man, you know, like a like a Mick Jagger guy, right. you know, and so we we put a dad's in the village voice and show all well, these guys show up, and uh, you know after about the second or third day, Michael shows up, you know, he's got a short haircut, southern accent, powder blue powder blue shirt and and, and tight pants, and he sat down with an acoustic guitar and sang Cool One, and you know we all kind of looked at each other and went, what else you got? He, he sang Rock This Town. He, you know, he laughed. We said, "Thank you very much." You know, we all looked at each other and said, "This is it, man. This is the, this is Elvis Presley. We just auditioned Elvis Presley. We got to get this guy." So we got him in the band, and we and then we functioned as Looking Glass for about a year. I'm just rounding rounding right. errors. And we went out and gigged this Looking Glass. We traveled. We we squeezed the last pennies out of the Looking Glass, and then we got some management. That encouraged us to change our name. We changed our name to Fallen Angel. Right. We we got signed again by Clive Davis. So Doobie got signed twice by signed Clive. Signed twice Davis. by Clive. Probably probably a unique achievement. Although well, Peter was in there too. people can say, can that. say that. And we did a, we did an album for uh, Arista Records that never came out. Uh, but two singles were released. They never did anything. And the, the deal was kind of dying. We could tell that their interest was kind of flagging. And right around that time, one of the manager guys somehow got hooked up with Bill O'Coin. Right. And Peter Sweevel, who was the bass player, yep. also somehow knew through the social scene in New York, Sean Delaney. You know who Sean Delaney was. And so things just kind of melted together. And we thought, okay, we'll go with we'll go with Bill O'Coin. And we were still Fallen Angels, but when Sean got involved with us, things started changing. You know, we dropped the keyboard player. Right. We got a second guitar player, which was Richie. We auditioned, and he he had the cutest girlfriend, so we so we we got him. We got him out of the yeah. back of the village voice. Yeah, that's that's right. He's the cutest girlfriend. <laughs> he, he could also play, and oh, uh, yeah, and uh, and and we changed our name to Stars with a Z, and then Sean, we worked with Sean for several months, I'd say at least several months, and developed a whole new thing, you know, a whole heavier, more you know, jump off the stage kind right. of thing. And uh, and in the, in that interim, we did a we did a a demo with Jack Douglas. Jack did the demo, right? Bill shopped it. He got offers from a bunch of labels. He picked, I guess, Capital One to give us the most money. And that's how that's how Stars began. 
we, we went back to Jack, did our first record, and there you go. So Sean Delaney, obviously very creative guy. Uh, great uh, guy. You know, incredible in, in terms of what he did for Kiss. Oh, yeah. He basically did their show. That's Before right. him, there was no That's Kiss right. show afterwards. What did he do specifically for you guys, creativity? Well, he, he showed up at rehearsal every day and just kicked our ass. You know? Right. He's, he, he told us we needed to look a little different. Like, I had a beard, long, hippie hair. Mm-hmm. He said, man, you, you're, you're so good looking. You need to, like, take advantage of that. Right. You know, so he got me a haircut. He got me some clothes. You know, got us all black leather jackets. I mean, started spending some money, some kiss money So he, he image and moves he, and, yeah, and yeah, being yeah. rock and, and roll. And it's not that we didn't want that, but we just didn't know how to do it. You needed someone he, maybe yeah, to help he, you? And Sean was probably the best guy in the world to figure out how to do that, you know. And he loved us, and we we thought, yeah, this guy's like, he's the he's the sixth stars, you know. And uh, and he really was, man. He traveled with us. He 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 really. We went to bat for us everywhere. I felt like that guy would take a bullet for any one of us, you know. Fantastic person, and uh, and he and what he did really worked because even though we didn't really couldn't understand it at the time while we were doing it. You really can't. You don't know it. Things are happening a million miles an hour in the rock and roll world. In retrospect, you can look back on it and go, well, no kidding. Right. But it took somebody from outside the band to see that, to look at these group of five guys and make them a a unit that made sense commercially in the world. It was easy to understand what we were. Rather than watching a band, rather than five individuals. That's right. He He was out. He was a disinterested, interested party where Sean would be able to stand there and look at us and see what was good and what needed improvement. Right. As well as making, yeah. he made musical suggestions, he made theatrical suggestions, and he knew where to push and and, and what to say and how to just like ramp yeah, it he up. Knew when to, he fought for his ideas. You know, oh, because yeah. like a genius is a guy that just convinces everybody else that they're right and that their idea is right. And he would fight for his ideas. He wouldn't give up until everybody else just said, okay. Just go ahead. I don't care anymore. Right. But, yeah, I have an interesting interesting thing that I heard. You tell me if you've ever heard this, dude. That Kiss kind of kicked Sean to the curb after a while. Yep. And that he got involved. He wanted to have another band that he could make as big or bigger than Kiss to show them that, hey, it wasn't all you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, It wasn't 100% just you guys. You needed my help. And it's unfortunate that we didn't become as big as them because that would have kind of that would have you know made Sean that would have really been great for Sean and so it was a, a disappointment for him as much as it was for us that it never happened in the in a gigantic way but but we have a legacy and and Sean is an equal part of that legacy as the five guys in the band. Just as much as he should have been up on stage with Kiss right. in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's but my right. conversations yeah, with him he, he felt discarded. And he knew he wasn't the guy to do that but he was the guy to be able to be the that catalyst from he didn't need to be the star he wanted to see people up on stage that represented his beliefs in what they were doing what sean did with them he then took and did with us right yeah and it worked it worked it just you know certain political things certain choice you know the choice of the record company people have criticized and you know just things happen it's business is rock and roll yeah and sometimes like if you have a song like cherry baby which you know, in, I didn't know it at the time. It seemed pretty commercial. But when you have a song like that and, and it stalls at number 22, you just think, what what more can I do? <laughs> you know, like, how can I, how can I make anything that's more in the marketplace but heavy and still conforms to the true, right, true being, identity being playable, of the band? Yeah. 
it's pretty it's pretty debilitating you know yeah, I mean you, people start you start getting a little cuckoo behind it like you know you wonder what you can do how can I do better than that you, you know? certainly have the producer. Your first two albums were produced by Jack right. Douglas. I mean, can, you right. can't do better than that right. in, in that time period. Yeah, how did, how did he job. get involved uh, with you? What, what do you remember about being able to retain Jack Douglas? Jack, well, uh, I think Alan Miller, who was the manager that went with O'Point, I think he knew Jack. And I, and I wouldn't doubt that Bill probably knew Jack. Well, Alan Miller was hooked in with Bob Ezrin, if I recall correctly. So, And, and Jack was in that area. Uh, I guess. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Who something knows? like that. Yeah, that might be. That might be. I mean, I, we're not talking. Wasn't there a guy named Allen, somebody that was an orchestrator for? Wasn't that guy the, the string writer? I think you might be talking about that guy. But Alan Miller was a guy who was a manager for us before O'Coin that went with O'Coin and got us with him. So, anyway, I mean. I just heard one day, hey, how would you guys like Jack Douglas to produce? And I didn't know who he was from Adam, but Richie did. He said, man, he produced Get Your Wings. And and I thought, what's Get Your Wings? I mean, I, ne- I, I never was in the rock, in the hard rock thing, right. you know. And uh, Richie, but Richie knew, knew exactly, all about it. He knew exactly it. who Jack was and, and then, he wanted it. But somebody said, well, he had something to do with who's next. And, you know, I don't know whether he really did or that's a that's a story. But, but as soon as somebody told me that, I thought, well, Shit, man! If he can make who's next with us, I'll go there every day of the week. You know? Absolutely. So, and, and he was great to work with right off the bat. You know, great ideas, great vibe. You know, got us the right situation, got things to sound really good, and and no stress. I mean, we we did the first album in three weeks from start to finish. It was mixed. It was from the first day to the last. It was three weeks. I mean, that is that's light speed yep. compared to. Even then, it was it, it was fast. It came in fully cooked. Yeah. Well, you'd had fully your whole cooked. life basically to write that That's album, right. so That's right. it road tested, refined, arranged, yeah. bang, you go in, you lay it down. Yeah, Violation all, wasn't quite that, that easy. And we did that with Sean. That's Sean right. Sean was yeah. a part, was an absolute participant in getting that first album ready to go. Right, and has some co-write credits on on yeah. some of those songs, yeah, and even some co-write credits on some Violation songs. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, turn it up. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, obviously, you're signed with All Coin Management, so you're in the Kiss Gravity Well. You've got Sean Delaney helping you. This is, I guess, specifically for you, Joe, because you're flipping through the vault book there. I and to see where I was. Yeah, you're, you're on there. You're in there. you got three mentions for Eat Your Heart Out, I Know Who You Are, um, drumming with Gene Simmons on demo sessions. You know, how, how did Gene come to you and start having you work with him? Uh, as he's laying down ideas, he he was notorious for just getting an idea, going yeah. in, cutting uh, it. How did how did he approach you? Well, you know, I knew Gene long before I ever saw him play. I always saw him around the office, and we just hang around and shoot the shit and go out to lunch and stuff like that. But he also saw stars play, and he knew that I could play. Right. And so that when he had an idea, he would just call me up and said, "I got some studio time at Electric Ladyland. Come on down." I remember one time I was, it was about midnight, I was buck naked, had one foot in bed, the phone rings, it's Gene, he says, come on down, I got the music, I got the studio, so, uh, okay, put my pants back on, got in the car, drove into New York, and recorded with him till dawn, Absolutely. and just did, just did, it was just me and him in the studio, we just came up with, he had stuff that he wanted to play on the tape, and it was just me and him making it up as we went along, and then he used that to refine how his songs were structured and then he would maybe play it as a demo for the rest of the guys and then go on from there. So I'm going to ask you straight up a question that's been bothering me. There's always been a rumor in the KISS Army 
about Peter Chris not drumming on the Alive 2 side, the studio tracks that he did, Larger Than Life, Rocket Ride, um, you know, all that stuff. Did, did you ever ghost? Were you ever the Dick Wagner on drums? Dick uh, obviously did session work in place of yeah. Ace, and yeah. that's well known. Doobie, Doobie signed a non-disclosure agreement about yeah. that. I, so I have to ask really my attorney, Michael Cohen, it. on that. That's right. So <laughs> we'll, mean, we'll find out from Michael on CNN later. Yeah, Michael Cohen will tell you that one after he gets out of jail. <laughs> well, Robert Mueller investigates the history of kids. We wouldn't want there to be a violation. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there are some other players on some things. I think Andy Newmark might have played on that. I've been told as well that I did wind some of the sessions that I did with uh, Stanley may have they may have used some of that stuff. Right. I don't know. And, and that's not to disrespect Peter oh, in, in any way not. because it's, it's business. Uh, no, I can't. I didn't. You didn't hear it from me. Peter and I both had the same influence of Gene Krupa. Right. We both cite Gene as a primary influence of how we play. I met Gene uh, when I was 13 years old. My two influences are Gene Krupa and Keith Moon, both of whom I met. Right. I met them both. So in, in terms of stars and, and the career that you guys had, four albums um, in, in the classic era, right. um, why did stars not make it, in, in your opinion? <laughs> what, what was missing? Was it just that it, it's, it's music and something didn't happen? Or did you not get the support of a label? Did you not get on the right tours, do you think? Well, I, I was there at the end. Brendan had, had moved on before that. But I think when we got done with the tours for Coliseum Rock, we, we sat back and we looked for a minute, and we wound up in Los Angeles. Um, and there was a lot of, I don't know, this is a technical term, there's a lot of Michigas going on in between the band and, uh, and O'Coin and Capitol and everything. And it was just swirling all over the place. And at the, at that, what wound up happening is we imploded. Right. What we should have done is taken six months off instead of not breaking up, but simply just say, all right, I'm going to go home for a while and I'll call you in a half a year. That would have been smarter. But instead, we all said, ah, oh, fuck this, I'm out of here. And that was it. So we imploded instead of maybe just taking a break. And that would have, I think, been a smarter thing to do because it's uh, rock and roll is a war of attrition. Yep. He who lasts the longest wins. And now, if we had simply stayed together, oh, I think we probably would have still been around doing it big time. Awesome. So let's get you guys back on schedule. Okay, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll call that one here. Pot, and then we're going to head up to the stage and do a little... As you wish. People. This was a treat for me. Thank you Thank very you much. Thank you both for your time Thank today. You, that was very cool. Very cool. All right, this is Julian at the National Rockin' Pod Expo, and I am joined by... Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock Podcast. I am in Atlanta, and my uh, partner in crime, Sonny Hollywood Pony, is located in Wisconsin. And sometimes in the Bay Area. And sometimes in the Bay Area. I like Sonny. He's a powerful and attractive Hollywood. Yes, he's got more followers than Gene Simmons these days. So tell us about the podcast. How did it come about? And what made you decide to jump into the podcasting game? And what do you bring to the show? I grew up on classic hard rock and metal, and quite frankly, when I was doing an hour and a half commute uh, to and from work, I didn't have a whole lot to listen to, and I was tired of radio playing the same damn three hard rock songs from bands, and there's so much more out of there, and I have a lot of useless knowledge, uh, and so I wanted to put that to good use, so I wanted to start doing a show that combined talk with actual killer deep cuts. 
So that's kind of where the idea came from originally. And then there's a lot that popped up along the way. But for me, it was all about kind of going back and remembering the good times and the stuff that we grew up on. So it was, you know, it was those memories and those stories of the first time you heard that Van Halen record, the first time you heard that Kiss record or whatever, you know, what was going on in your life at the time? Why, how did you end up a music fan in general? Because there are people, my wife, she's kind of indifferent to music. She likes music. I think we all like music, but some of us are really serious music fans. Anybody that's doing a podcast is a music fan because everybody I've met, right, yourself included, we gravitate towards music and we have all this crazy knowledge like, you know, this Def Leppard record or this Kiss record or this engineer on this record. We have all this knowledge. So that was important to me to kind of share that with the world. And if I'm sharing it with some 15-year-old kid in Australia who's never heard the Van Halen Fair Warning, then great. Good for me. So that's what it's yeah, all about. You might be turning people on to music that they don't know. That's uh, right. You know, th- there's a lot of young people out there who are now getting into metal. Yeah. And the archival metal that no longer even exists. Yeah. They're, they're digging into bands. They're going to Amoeba. They're buying records. They're, they're really getting into a lot of this because of what podcasts are doing. So in, in, in a certain way, you're also holding the torch open to a whole... You know, holding the torch for a whole bunch of different music out there. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it before. It's like we don't know where the where the future rock stars are going to come from because if people are growing up loving Beyonce and Jay Z and stuff like that, and listen, there's nothing wrong with that. But where is the curators? And this is a great word. Where are the curators? Yeah for everything that we knew and loved in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. MTV is no longer in existence. Sirius XM hair radio is going to play the same two songs, the same as, as uh, regular radio. Just like FM. Same as regular FM radio. So there is no more curators. You and I were sitting across from the table looking at each other. We're the fucking curators of this shit. That's a scary thought, actually. So tell me about the last episode that you put out for Growing Up Rock. Last episode we did for Growing Up Rock was, um, I'm trying to remember because we we release an episode a week. And usually when I push that release button or schedule it, I'm on to the next one. So I know that we we just did a top five docking episode. And I think we just released or we're about to release an episode that's called Hey, Who's the New Guy? Which is all about replacement players that came into bands and contributed immediately to the band and the band's sound. So, for instance, a lot of people don't know that Neil Peart was a replacement player for Rush. Absolutely. September 74, he replaced uh, Rootsy. You know, and so the 15-year-old kid that's just hearing Rush for the first time might not know that. He might only know Neil Peart as being the drummer in Rush, but there was a guy before him. So we talk about that kind of stuff, and, uh, you know, we mix up interviews we, we either do an interview episode or we'll do a themed episode, which is whatever whatever hits our, our fancy bone. We did one not too long ago that I thought was really funny where we, re, we revisited the Filthy 15. 
the PMRC's Filthy oh 15. Oh, my God, really? And so we went through a whole thing. We, like, we played this whole um, – the Congress uh, uh, interviewing D. Snyder oh, thing. We played that. And Zappa. And Zappa. And then we talked about should those songs have been on the Filthy 15 or not, and what are some of the songs today that might should be on that Filthy 15. And Everything? It was kind of fun, you know, because some of those songs were like, okay, why is this on here? Like, Def Leppard's High and Dry, the song, was on the Filthy 15. It's like, oh, Okay, you know. It had the word high, and that is a dangerous word. You know, but in 80, 86, I think it was, um, I don't know, you have to forgive me, but um, it was in the 80s, and even in the 80s, I don't think that was a big deal. So I don't know what the, you know, they cited drug abuse and, and, and uh, drinking alcoholism to that song, but God, I, mean, I mean, like, Wasp, Fuck Like a Beast. Should have been on the Filthy well, 15. That, that's kind of understandable. Should have been on the Filthy 15. We have no problem with that. But, uh, you know, uh, Darling Nikki, that's that's really what started the whole thing. Because You can totally understand why that would be on there. You know, I I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, so we have fun on the show. Awesome. So, you know, obviously we're a KISS podcast. You guys listen to KISS. I'm going to I'll give you my standard inquisition that I give everyone I speak right. with. What was your first Kiss album? So my first Kiss album was probably Creatures of the Night. Um, I may have had Alive, the first Alive, but I think Creatures of the Night was actually the first Kiss record for me. Um, I got into Kiss a lot later than everybody. I saw The Phantom uh, meets the park, uh, but I wasn't a diehard like crazy Kiss fan. You know, I, I like them. I liked them as a hard rock band. I was like, I like this band, but I just didn't, I wasn't into it like everybody else. And I went into the music business when I was um, uh, 16 years old. Uh, I started working for a local venue. And true story, the first show I ever worked was Kiss Animalized Tour. And I set up Eric Carr's drum kit and stood backstage next to Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons going, holy shit, because I was a 16-year-old kid standing on a stage behind Eric Carr's drum kit on a riser looking at an empty arena. How fucking cool is that? I still have my backstage pass from that tour. That's an absolutely amazing story. I mean, you just never know when you talk to someone, some of the stories with Kiss. I mean, Kiss permeate. Kiss is like like a cancer in some ways yeah they permeate every aspect of americana yeah that you can talk to anyone and they probably have a kiss story yeah and you got to sit behind a drum kit and look out in an arena that's as a 16 year old kid as a 16 year old kid i mean that that ties in you know perfectly with like ace frehley yeah talking about how he roadied for Jimi hendrix yeah you know so it, it kind of, it's a cycle it's a circle it really is and i mean at the end of the day it's all about music fandom i mean i think you have to be a music fan first to really really seriously get the geekness that we are uh discussing you know uh, I think that the average music listener doesn't necessarily get how deep it goes with some of us. Uh, you know, music has been uh, an emotional thing in my life. It's helped me through tough times. Uh, it's gotten me through a lot, and I'm no different than a lot of people. I know that. I get it. But 
uh, there is no right or wrong with music. It means different things to different people, and one man's ear candy is another man's trash, you know. It just and, and it doesn't matter. They're not wrong or right, you know. Here's what I'd like to remind people, that music doesn't know left or right. Music is the soundtrack of our lives, no matter yeah. what we listen to. We may not like Megadeth, may not like Anthrax, may not like classical, may not like pop, but at the end of the day, music unites us a lot more yeah. than anything else in this world or in this life. Yeah, that's so right. We, anyone can hear a song and be pulled back 30 years to a moment in their life that was special to them. That's what's amazing. That's in part. That's kind of what growing up rock is all about. Is I'll talk to an artist and I'll say, "Dude, take me back to that time when you were 16. What was it that flipped the switch for you and made you a fan?" And you can see their eyes and in their head, like jumping in the Bill and Ted fucking phone booth, right? And it takes them back to that moment, and they'll recapture that. I've had a couple of like fairly emotional moments where you can tell that the the person that I'm talking to and they're telling me about it are seriously emotional about it. I mean, uh, and that means a lot to me because it's so it's such a passionate thing about music, you know. So let's talk a little bit more about Kiss. Okay. What is your favorite Kiss album? You told us you're first. Yeah. So it's hard because it's like anybody else. So we it we changes do changes on a daily basis. It changes on a daily and sometimes hourly basis. We do a kiss store moment every episode on our show, and it usually ties into what the theme is. So uh, depending on the theme, we'll do a kiss store moment. We'll play a song that ties into the theme somehow. Um, and whether it's a cover version of a kiss song or an actual kiss song, it is what it is. Um, but for me. I really, really like Rock and Roll Over. Rock and Roll Over is a really good record. I also really like Love Gun. Yep. Um, so there's some really good stuff. Now do, you, now, do you think Love Gun would be better if it sounded like the production on Rock and Roll Over? You know, I don't think. Or the do you pro- think it's perfect as it is? I don't think the production is terrible on Love Gun. It's. Uh, I have a problem. I would really. I think that I would really, really, really love Hotter Than Hell as an album if the production was bearable production for me on that record just is not bearable i love those songs parasite may be one of my all-time favorite kiss songs if not my favorite kiss song but it's hard with that production it just is uh so if 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 i would love to hear hotter than hell in like today's mix like if it sounded like um you know uh creatures of the night or something like that but those songs, I would be interested in hearing that. Like, I think that would be amazing. Awesome. So let's go to the bar and talk about Kool-Aid. All right. What flavor of Kool-Aid are you? Who's your favorite member of KISS? You know, I think that I've probably always been a Paul Stanley guy simply because I think I like or gravitate more to the Paul Stanley songs. Um, usually the upbeat, uh, heavy, fast, and his, his register uh, for singing-wise is, is a sweet spot for me. So I think probably I gravitate, but more and more I kind of like Gene, you know, these, these things. And, and uh, you know, listening to, uh, getting to be friends with uh, the guys in his band these days and kind of sharing stories and talking about some of that stuff, you know, I'm starting to appreciate him uh, as an individual. So, yeah. That's it. That's kind of it. They're an amazing group of guys, those uh, Gene Simmons band boys, aren't they? They are. They're fantastic. I love those guys. 
I'm loving, I'm living through their eyes and uh, enjoying the ride. You know, they're keeping music alive. Some of them are a little bit younger than most of us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're still holding that torch high for rock and roll. Well, I mean, uh, watching them in Indy, they were doing Montrose. They did, obviously, played with Lita. They, they, they love rock, and the rock and roll residency is a kick-ass experience. Oh, it's fun. I've seen it twice now, and, and you know, you, you can you can figure out real quick when it's coming from an honest place. You know what I mean? When the passion is there, the honesty is on the face. Exactly, and so you figure that out real quick, and, uh, and those guys are as passionate, as honest as they are uh, about rock and roll. All right, so tell my audience where people can find you. People can find us at the Growing Up Rock Podcast. That is G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. And you can find us at any of your favorite podcast outlet. You can also follow us at Growing Up Rock. That's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And go check out the Julian Gill episode we did. Mr. Julian Gill's been on our show. I have. I what was the episode? <laughs> we did uh, <laughs> did we do we did like a uh, what did we do an indie expo uh, preview or a uh, what did we do? I don't know. I, I guess people are gonna have to go find out. Yeah, go look it up. It's in there somewhere. All right. So thanks a lot for joining us. Enjoy the rest of the day, and I will see you soon. Thanks, Julian. All right, so this is Julian back at the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. I'm joined by BJ Kahuna of the Rock and or Roll Podcast. How you doing, BJ? I'm good, thanks, Julian. For it's people good to who, see you again. Yeah, you too. You know, mm. it seems to be this yearly get together that's uh, really yeah. being built up well by Chris Inzak and the crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's looking good. It's looking pretty good this year. It's nice. So for people who don't know you, shame on you first of all. But uh, <laughs> you know, tell everyone about your podcast. Yeah, my podcast is Rock and or Roll. Julian's been on three episodes, I think. Powerage. Yeah, High and Drive, Zodiac Mind Warp, Powerage. Yeah. Or Powerage. Powerage, <laughs> as, as of course we know. That was a fun episode. Most fun I've actually had doing a show. And the High and Dry, I mean, anytime I get to pontificate about Def Leppard, always enjoy that. But you do all sorts of different off-the-wall kind of music stuff you're yeah. not just uh, sticking to one thing what, what's a highlight of your show that people should, who don't know your show should uh, give you give you a chance well you know i have a huge record collection and i just play a lot like i do episodes i call aor aok where i just play random aor songs from all kinds of obscure artists and i just some a lot of my episodes are just like 20 25 songs that most people have never heard before <laughs> so it's kind of sometimes it's just kind of a uh over-the-top radio show but then other times i just do band specific episodes and stuff like that but i've got 240 something episodes now so there's so over 2,000 different bands been played on the show you know (laughs) yeah that's a lot i did check out some of your episodes that you had a lot of early 70s new york city glam yeah that was a great episode with john montgomery yeah you interviewed yeah. And uh, some of the other stuff that were precursors to Kiss in many ways mm-hmm. that uh, you got some great stories out of him as well. So, you know, th- there's a lot of eclectic stuff on rock and or roll that's really fun to listen to. So I, I strongly recommend that people check you out. Now, obviously, we're a Kiss podcast yeah. on, on the Kiss FAQ. So what's your favorite Cheap Trick album? <laughs> <laughs> My favorite Cheap Trick album is the first album. It's oh, hell be. yeah. Hell yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Ken Mills has been making me go through their catalog. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and really start educating myself about them. But now let's get out to Kiss. 
What was your first Kiss album? When I was five in 1979, my uncle, my mom's youngest brother, who was probably early 20s, he was a big Kiss fan. And so he got me into Kiss. Like, 79, I was Gene Simmons for Halloween, and we had, like, a tape of Kiss songs my uncle made me. You know, just like everybody else in 1979, I lost interest in Kiss for a while. Yeah, that seems to happen to a lot yeah. of people. But then I got back into them, like, around 12, 12 years old, when I really started getting back into music, and... Uh, I just got all the albums with, like, probably got everything within, like, a year or so. Like, birthday, Christmas, just getting them yep. with my allowance. Yeah, it was the same with me. I remember the first, al- I remember my friend Nick put Dress to Kill on a tape for me. And that's what really made me go nuts. And that's still my favorite Kiss album, but as I just had, like, a dubbed tape of it. So, not even sure what the first one is that I actually, like, own. I often you know? feel like we should be explaining what a mixtape is to some of the younger <laughs> yeah. listeners who live in iTunes. That's yeah. really something that we... I remember taping songs off the radio and just yeah. building up a mixtape. It was never planned out what it was going to be on there. So obviously you've just mentioned your favorite album is Dress to Kill. Why? What is it about that album that makes it your your favorite? Is it the sound? Is it the songs? It's both. I Yeah, I think... I'm not sure if this is correct, but it might be the only Kiss album where I like... I love every song, you know? There's not even one song that I don't really like or don't really care right. for. Right, there's not much that you could actually call filler right. on Dress to Kill. I mean, I know some people don't like some songs in there, but I just love them, you know? I mean, I know people don't like Room Service, some people or some people make fun of Ladies in Waiting or something, but I think it's such a cohesive album. You just listen to it all the way yep. through it. It's so much fun. It's such a fun album, and yeah, they... They basically produced it themselves, right? And it's like one of it's maybe their best sounding record to my ears. Essentially, I mean, it, it does balance uh, great sonics yeah. with also the pressure of writing it in a in a hurry because of Neil demanding that they produce another studio album. Yeah, that they worked well under pressure, especially when you consider some of the stuff that they didn't use. That they were able to come up with such high quality stuff. And Paul's stories about a song like say uh, "Coming to Love Me." And how quickly that was written. Yeah. Like, oh my God, a song like that was basically an emergency. And yeah. look at the quality of Paul Stanley's writing at the time, or Gene's uh, Ladies in Waiting. I mean, I know some people that's not one of their favorite songs, but it's an incredibly well crafted song with a kind of cool story. And if you listen to Ladies in Waiting in the context of the album, like you're just playing the record, it's awesome. Like, if you take it on its own like that's the only song you're going to listen to right now is ladies in waiting it's a different experience than hearing the whole record straight through you know all right so my final question for you is what flavor kool-aid do you drink who's your favorite member of kiss well my favorite songwriter in kiss is paul stanley for absolutely, sure absolutely yep but you know as far as just like i mean i've always loved ace freely but when i was a kid gene was my favorite you know when i was five i got the gene doll and i was gene for halloween two to two years right. and so he was my favorite then so, you know. All of the above, in other words. I guess Peter's my least favorite. <laughs> Sorry, Peter. You know. It's hard not to say Ace, but Paul was such a great songwriter. You well, know? I've kind of said that, you know, Paul Stanley is the heart and soul of Kiss. Yeah. You know, he steered the ship through the stormy sea. And, yeah. and you know, yeah, a little bit of an elder reference there. But he kept, uh, you know, the weight of the band on his shoulders for much of the 1980s, their most difficult period, when Gene was off... You know, trying yeah. other things, working with other bands, doing the acting, or what he, uh, what is loosely described as acting. Um, you know, Paul stuck with it. He didn't do solo albums. He didn't produce a tremendous amount of other bands. So yeah. it's it's kind not to kind of hard not to give him the love and respect or Ace because of what Ace brought in terms of the guitar sound, which is so critical. 
yeah. to the band. Yeah. And then Ace's solo album is just so great that it's, you oh, know. I mean, 40 years on. I mean, yeah. who would have thought? Ace really, really knocked it out of the park with that yeah, solo he album. he really did. All right, BJ, where can people find you and your show? Probably the easiest thing I say now is just Google Rock and or Roll Podcast, and then you'll see all the links for iTunes, Blogger, Facebook. It'll all be there, you know. That's my snarky comment to people who ask questions on the Kiss FAQ message board. G-O-O-G-L-E. Yeah. It really will provide you with all the answers that you need in life. But Google if you it. Google Rock and or Roll, you get Simpsons stuff, because that's where I got the name from. Oh. Reverend Lovejoy oh, said it. Oh, so oh, nice so you got to add podcasts on the end, then you get all my... What's your most recent episode, and what was it about? AORAOK Volume 11 came out uh, yesterday. And then the week before, it was an episode called Hey, which was all songs that started with Hey. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> so, so you know, that's what I'm talking about. Quirky yeah. quirky topics, very yeah. well done. You put a lot of effort into your show, the episodes that I've been on with you. You, you really did a good job producing. So it's been an honor to be on with you. And thanks for joining us on the Kiss Heavy Key podcast today. Thanks, Julian. All right. BJ Kahuna <laughs> from the Rock and or Roll podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for spending time listening to the Kiss FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the Kiss FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.